so sweet You are so bad Hello there! You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Dallas Buyers Club. My name is Tom Chick, and to discuss the movie with you, I have here with me Christian Malinsky. Uh, you can just you can call me Salt or Pepper, doesn't matter. <laughs> and with our Dallas Buyers Club tagline. Kelly Wand. System's broken, y'all. <laughs> That's the worst McConaughey I've ever heard. Dingus, could you do a little better with that? Worse than what? Did you ever heard? Was that your McConaughey or your Kevin Costner? I couldn't tell. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey. <laughs> Maybe later he'll do it for us, but uh, of the people on this podcast, there's only one person who does a mean McConaughey, and uh, hopefully he'll weigh in later. His name is not Kelly Wand. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes for the synopsis. Um, <laughs> Wait, that's not pumping me up. Sorry. Well. I just, Dingus has really set high expectations for what I look for in a McConaughey impression. I've never heard it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Really? He's. Ne- I guess maybe, I thought he'd maybe been coaxed into when doing it. When would he have done it? We've never even talked about McConaughey on the podcast. Oh, oh please, please. Still haven't. It. This isn't even talking about him. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe, Dingus, I just want you to feel free later on if you want to come in with a little of your McConaughey now that I've gotten everybody's expectations up uh just feel free uh i got oh never mind what no do we have some uh, some bookkeeping to handle well just like you're do, you're saying oh dingus does an awesome mcconaughey i've never heard and right before we start recording dingus tells me like it's nothing oh by the way i took sword fighting class uh with master and commander extras to do a burger king commercial mm-hmm. like it's nothing <laughs> Which is less nothing of those two, I ask you. Dingus, would you like to tell us about your Burger commercial or do your McConaughey impression or in later, do like... your, your tell us about your Burger King commercial in the voice of Matthew McConaughey? I would like to do neither. Neither of them matter. Those were three things. Oh, they great. all matter equally. <laughs> and that Agent Coulson wrote What Lies Beneath was tripping me out. I found that out because I was watching a movie a Spanish-language movie that I thought was a remake of What Lies Beneath. So while I'm watching it, I'm watching it on, on Netflix. <laughs> That's your setup. All right. Continue. Yeah, because I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, this might be a remake of What Lies Beneath. I'd better check it out. It's about a haunted house where where the, the guy um, thinks his, his house is being haunted by his, his wife, who's gone missing. But it turns out she's just locked in a Nazi bunker. Um, <laughs> She's not missing. So I looked it up online I was to, to see, you know, if it said under the name of the movie, if there was like a connection. And then I went to the page for What Lies Beneath. <laughs> you need to know everything. I really do. I'm telling you, I saw – all right. But then when I looked at the page for What Lies Beneath, you know, directed by Robert Zemeckis, writer Clark Gregg. I'm like, oh, that's funny. That guy has the same name as Agent Coulson. What? You know, and I clicked on it. Sure enough, Clark Gregg is the, the writer of What Lies Beneath, the Robert Zemeckis movie. So there you go. There's because I watched him in a movie this week. Clark Gregg. Yeah. Was it called The Avengers? It was not. It was a different movie. Oh, uh, you're watching that Agents of Shield thing on ABC and confusing yes. it with a movie. No, no, no. Where did you see uh, Clark Gregg in? Well, he, the guy's done a million movies. He's, well, he's literally got something like 75 movies to his credits. Uh, I said, I'll tell you later. Will it will come up later? Interesting. Well, I did notice while looking at his page, he's also directed a movie recently where he's the lead and he plays an agent for washed up child stars. 
and it's supposed to be a kind of a black comedy. And whatever that is, I, I want to see that. <laughs> he's funny. He's, he's on the Adventures of Old Christine. He was funny. He's really deadpan. No, yeah, he's great. I mean, there's. I'm, I'm, and I'm what lies beneath is such a weird. <laughs> it's not I what know, you'll be on a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Conquer the horror movie genre. <laughs> on the show of Shield, do they just fly around in that thing all the time? Please, you think I've seen that? I don't want. That's more like Dingus. Tell us about Agents of Shield on ABC. Uh, they fly around in that thing all the time. <laughs> all right. Now that we've. What's your eight-year-old think of that show? I don't know. I have a nine-year-old. All right. Forget it then. See where that got you, Kelly Warren? Yeah, Dingus, why don't you tell folks what we saw this week? All right. Well, this week we saw Dallas Buyers Club, a 2013 American biography drama his- history movie. <laughs> is that a, a dog or a baby? Uh, it is a baby. Okay. Uh, and this movie is about extreme weight loss. It was directed by Jean-Marc Valle and written by Craig Borton and Melissa Wallach. Not Clark Gregg. Not Clark Gregg. Clark Gregg did not direct or write or act in this movie. Hmm. Uh, But it does star Dallas Roberts, Matthew. (laughs) No relation. How does Dingus know who Dallas Roberts is because he doesn't watch Walking Dead? How do you know who that is, Dingus? Uh, Joshua. I love that guy. Wow. Yeah, okay. We don't love him enough to watch. Um, he, there's a movie where he plays like a tortured late night talk radio show host who uh, encounters uh, shadow people and they come for him. What? Yep, it's true. It's like Ostrom in a Weekend by way of Letterman. Shadow Not at all people? Like that. So shadow people is, yeah, there's this idea that, you know, if you ever see movement out of the corner of your eye, it's the shadow people. Uh, and crazy, <laughs> cra- crazy people who call like late night talk, radio talk shows. Uh, we'll talk about the shadow people. So they made a movie about it, and they needed to cast like a really tough, hard-bitten, uh, sort of world-weary, cynical, wise character to be the the, the host of the talk show. Anthony and instead, Hopkins. nope. Instead, they got Dallas Roberts, <laughs> who I love as well. Uh, I love that guy. But well, what's so the shadow people movie where if the light goes out, the shadow people get you? Well, there was the Brad Anderson thing yeah. where John Logazamo and. Uh, Christian Haydenson, um, and that's right. Not Dandy like Newton. Tom Snyder. It is Dandy Newton. It is Dandy Newton. Okay, and that, what's the name of that one? Ding. It's the Vanishing. Vanishing the on Seventh Street. Vanishing on Seventh Street. Very good. Yeah, yeah. But those aren't shadow people. That's like a more of a, a metaphysical kind of force or something. But yeah. it does do shadow people kind of thing. Why can't they just appear in front of you? Shadow people. Yeah, why they got to? They give themselves they s- away. They're like they're like leprechauns, kind of. You can't just look straight at them. It doesn't work that way, Kelly. Yeah, yeah but you see them before they're coming. Peripherally, you know, Kelly. Maybe you should watch that Dallas Roberts movie. I'm sure. It, I don't remember it enough, but I'm sure it explains that sort of thing. Um. Right. Hey, I know the Flash can speed talk, Paul, but can he see shit as fast as he runs? So he doesn't crash into things. I wish they'd when when they make a Flash movie starring Dwayne Johnson. We will know the answer to that. In the flesh so, speed C. Dig it, so you I cut you off. So uh give us the cast again. Start start over. I cut you off. Sorry about that. Right. <laughs> it, it stars it stars Dallas Roberts, hmm? Matthew McConaughey, hmm? uh Jared Leto, and Jennifer I mean sorry, Doctor Jennifer Garner. Dingus, have you verified that's how you say Jared Leto's name? I really haven't, but I went with the uh predominant pronunciation. 
Isn't there a Duke Leto? Oh, geez, that's from Dune, isn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Uh, Duke I Leto. I, was, I, was totally gonna, I totally thought I was bringing up something about Shakespeare. One has a hollow tooth, the other one has a hollow arm. <laughs> 30 seconds from Dune. Oh, my God. Wow, you brought it up excitedly, too. Like, I was like, hey, hey out of the way, no, Jared. No, it was... Out of the way, Aronofsky. I'm getting to Frank Herbert, fucker. <laughs> uh, Dallas Buyers Club is rated R. Mm. For pervasive language, some strong sexual content, nudity, and drug use. What? Lots of different kinds of drug uses. Like Dean Stockwell's tooth. Oh wait, that was a different. That's not drugs. That's. Oh wait, no. Maybe it is. Wasn't Duke Leto played by like Maximilian Shell or someone? Dean Stockwell. Oh Oh, wait, too soon. Too soon. Who was the hot mom in that again? Uh, Jessica Walters. Like you. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm sorry. You were talking about Dune. Please continue. Dune Flyers Club. Spice. Dune Flyers Desert. State. Okay, Arrakis, fine. We can't, we can't sell Spice, but you can come and join our club on Arrakis. Who controls, who controls the AZT, controls the universe. Ouch. Okay. Uh, let's see. So uh, Dallas Buyers Club on Metacritic, which is the percentage of reviews that – oh, I've done it wrong – which is the average of reviews from various rating from various reviews. The average on Metacritic for Dallas Buyers Club is – stand by. Get ready for this. I'm going to knock your socks off. 84. Yep. On Rotten Tomatoes, which is the percentage of reviews of that are positive, Dallas Buyers Club is at 93% positive. Uh. So it, it just came out on uh, DVD this week. Uh, it, it had an, an, uh, an opening back in November. Uh, it had a very limited release. At first, it, it finally uh, opened to about 600 theaters in November against um, Hunger Games 2 and uh, Delivery Man. Uh, They're starving in Hunger Games 2. Uh, it came in at, uh, on that, that weekend when it opened uh, wider. It came in at number 10. Uh, made $2.5 million on that opening weekend against Hunger Games 2. Which came in the first nine positions, all of them. Well, uh, Hunger Games 2, and then I think that was in, during when Gravity was going really big, Delivery Man. Uh, what else was big back then, Kelly Wand? Gravity was in the stratosphere. Hunger Games had eaten up a lion's <laughs> portion of those profits. <laughs> Kelly Wand writing variety headlines. Very nice. Forties version. But Kelly Wand, what I really would like for you to do now... Oh. Maybe give us a brief sketch of the events in Dallas Buyers Club. Go ahead and spoil it. If you haven't seen it, you might want to fast forward past this part. Or maybe go see it and come back. Or maybe just listen. Um, pause. Watch as, it. Bring the Yeah. However you like to do it. Uh, and so, Kelly Wong, what would you call it if you were to synopsize the events of, of Dallas Buyers Club? Any theories? Before we get to that, I actually have a question. Shouldn't there be an apostrophe in this title? Uh, you mean between the A and S of Dallas? The last. There's, there's not. There's not. Dingus, do you did did you look into this? There should be. It's buyers. It's their club. Yeah. Well, no, wait. Then that's possessive. That would increase Tom's correctness. No, it should be Dallas Buyers apostrophe Club, but it's yeah. not written that way. Unless there's one buyer and he's the buyer of it. Maybe it's just where I looked. I don't. I didn't. I didn't check the title card. But looking up, uh, like on on Metacritic and on Box Office or on Rotten Tomatoes, there was no apostrophe, and I was I was disappointed. No, it's not anywhere written that way. But I think it should be. All right. So what's going on with that? 
It would be too confusing. I guess so. Do any movies have apostrophes? Can you guys think of one right now? American Pie. Uh, Tyler Perry's... Ah, very good, Dingus. Tyler Perry's is still in the blank. Yeah, Dingus is right, I think. Uh, Okay, fair enough. Hers, the Spike (laughs) (laughs) Jones. By the way, I thought we were going, oh, let's blow off that slog, Monuments Men, and see something fun. I thought this movie was about fucking football because it had Dallas in the title. I, it is. I, the da- that's, you're talking about the Dallas, Cow- that's the Dallas Cowboys. That's not a club that has – what? What were you going to say, Tom? You I, I, like I quite a response. About, I mean I knew this was about AIDS, but I thought this was – had some, like I really did think he was like a, supposed to be a rodeo clown. Like I thought it was about a rodeo clown. Oh, good Lord. AIDS. Really? I don't know why I thought that. I mean there's clown there imagery in this, but at some point I did pick up – I mean I just knew that he – was a guy in Texas who gets AIDS, but I really did think he was a rodeo clown. Uh, so when it started, I was a little relieved. Oh, relieved? <laughs> well, I was kind of like, oh, that's a bit, it's, I mean, well, it seems a little, a little frivolous. I mean, it's not much yeah. of a profession. I don't that's know. what his friends thought. I don't but also, they he didn't really actually ride the thing, ride horses. Uh, and stuff. Well, let's get into it. So, Kelly Wand, why don't you tell us a bit about what happens in the movie, and then let's discuss some of those issues. So, Kelly Wand, I would like from you a Dallas Buyers Clubopsis. I thought about that. Yeah? But then I went with Clubsis. All right. Uh, Something for a Clubsis. I've never heard Dingus take a stand like that before (laughs) on an Opsis title. Yeah, obviously it feels strong. It was such an interesting choice of the first (laughs) It was a Val-related stats that's he was pretty passionate tom you're you, i see you're standing back on this you're not gonna go with dingus i just need dingus to settle down yeah exactly. dingus, you cool your jets you make it a mockery of the clopsis yeah that's that job's taken my, my mistake sidebar i got a call from wells fargo this morning saying they've noticed unusual behavior on my credit card so I was all defined unusual, and the chick went, we noticed last night you spent only $7 at the marijuana dispensary. <laughs> I yawned and hung up. My signature move. Well then, define unusual, y'all. Well, Mr. McConaughey, you only spent $7 on blow last week, and uh, 9 on hookers. To hell with y'all. System's broken. Click. Y'all still there? Yes, so you can't just say click. You have to hang up the phone. Uh, it's only 1980. Click! Damn your Yankee eyes. Where was I? Oh, yeah, hell. Sure, the rock's gay. Ain't y'all ever seen the Tooth Fairy? Yeah, me and Travis and the boys, uh, we're still totally racist. not an issue at all. We've been, you know, rethinking the whole homophobia thing, and we're thinking maybe it's just a little arbitrary. Because it's like less competition. It's more pussy for us, really, if you think about it. Plus the whole military thing. If they're volunteering to get their asses shot off and we're draft dodge, it's not like we're going to see much of them anyway. I can't believe a word of this, Hornswoggle. Daryl has your very first lynching. And Carl, we strung up that whole fence together across the Gulf to keep them Brazilians at what they said is going to change the whole face of bikini waxing. Who was the one who had bolt cutters once we noticed we was on the wrong side? Not just progress. The whole ocean. Now y'all are saying gayness don't hurt our asses to even contemplate. I've never been so insulting all my life. Y'all make me sick. Back the fuck off. I was going to straddle me that male livestock robot. Three words later. <gasps> God damn. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Tom 
Bob says disappointed as a Bacate so far. <clears throat> I'll change that. God damn! My head feels better than usual. Mr. McConaughey, please turn your head and cough. Heck, get your hands off those. Look, Jennifer Garner's standing right there. How come I get your stinky-ass cold fingers fries around my hush puppies? <coughs> Mr. McConaughey, I'm afraid we have good news and bad news. You have 30 days to live. Luckily, we have these Ebola pills here. Our stockholders' kids found uh, 29 of those. That'll be $100,000. Now for the bad news. You'll be sharing a bed with this guy. Hello, white man! Oh, God. My name Fabric Softener. I patiented three hospitals down. I introduce myself to every cowboy I see. What what what's happening? That's his Jared Leto. Yeah. That's what I hear. I don't know what you're It's not the same movie. Now back to my McConaughey. If you don't mind. <laughs> Damn, fellas, you believe the crazy night I had. What y'all having? First ran on me. Boo, a friend's alive. Uh, Spit on us and learn something about yourself. We're ghosts. <laughs> I know, I changed it. Oh, blacked out again. Last thing I remember is losing 30 pounds for Magic Mike. Yeah, I think I'm uh, Griffin Dunn and Tom Connie, uh, plus eight, Stanley Tucci. Here's some zinc and some uh, Flintstone vitamins. No biopic for me. <laughs> anyway, uh, I have all these drugs that could save lives or something. <laughs> biopic, huh? Wait, that's it. I'll take these drugs and sell them to dying people. You know, like an insurance company. Set slightly better product and out a hotel room like the sex. Got them sick. Looks like God just sent me a chachangalingus and wake-up call. You want me to write the prescription to smuggle into the United States? Is that legal? Mm. Take copies of Wesley Snipes' vampire movies on VHS also. They make you Braid Runner. Angus, Braid Runner. I hear you. You're quoting Phantom Menace. That's fine. What's your problem, Toe Jam? We already had racist accents. Y'all want Dingus to photobomb us and throw me them mustache combs and quick cut dudes in hazmat suits. What do you think this is? Silkwood? Matthew, I was kind of upset when you stole my prescription pad while we were kissing, but then I told the board of directors to fire me and stormed out. I got the sense they didn't know who I was. But it was the <laughs> you. Thank you. Here, I wrote you a prescription for prescription pads. Please try not to abuse them. And here's one for a wedding ring. Let's get married. <laughs> that night at a fictitious rodeo. Well, sir, just like Victor Frankenstein, I started out as a humble electrician, did something to turn the whole medical industry on its head. Just as I, McConaughey, the deodorant attract, taught the public a little something about 1880. <laughs> 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 oh, I hate acting. God, the weight loss is the easy part. <laughs> For me. Just as I, McConaughey, the deodorant attractor, taught the public a little something about 1980s chemicals. Remember, people, never take your health for granted unless it's for a good cause, like losing weight for a part or riding a milking machine. 
and never be ashamed of who you are. That's what's really cool. What is it, Gary? Yeah, so the Academy, they're saying they're iffy about supporting for Wolf Wall Street because your screen time in trailers 12 times longer than it is in the movie. Uh, same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. But ain't that piece of paper the sum of the choice they're going to try and make for you? Let me tell you this, Gary. The older you get, the more rules they're going to try to get you to follow. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Uh, they hung up. Gary? Huh? You like working for me? No. Prove it. <laughs> uh, let's see under the uh, I wasn't sure I understood the ending, but I did enjoy it, Kelly Wong. No, he's doing a contact reference and also Days of Confused reference. Oh, very good. I forgot about contact. All right. I didn't have an ending, so I did too many of them. Dingus, how did you feel about his McConaughey? Uh, I think it's uh, it's right up there. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thank you, Kelly Wong, for uh, the synopsis. Uh, Dingus, first I want to ask you, you saw this with a mutual friend of ours who re- apparently really disliked it. What was going on with that? Uh, she just got bored with it early on and thought it was tedious, I think. All right, and uh, how does that fall in line with what you thought about it? Um, I didn't feel exactly the same way. I just felt like I was constantly watching acting. And so I kind of... I had a hard time watching it. It just felt like I was constantly watching somebody acting and other people acting, and there was like maybe one moment where I thought, oh, gee, that person's not acting. That's nice. That's refreshing. Uh, but everybody else, I just felt like they were so just revving their engines and acting so hard, and we lost all this weight. We're acting so hard. Look, I'm acting. Hey, everybody, I'm acting. Uh, so, yeah. it's like the opposite of the opposite. <laughs> exactly. The opsis I thought was totally real. <laughs> but I just I just saw so much acting in this that I couldn't I just really I was really pretty turned off by it, unfortunately. Because right. I know everybody else likes it. And I feel like whenever I whenever I watch a movie and I think, you know, I'm totally out of line with the rest of the critics and this is a best picture nominee and everything and I feel terrible, so and plus, it's, it's it's an important movie with, an, with a capital I. Um, I felt bad. Uh, when you say you just saw a lot of acting, can you give us like other examples of, of that? Um, for for instance, a movie we uh, well, I don't even want to bring up other examples. But what what when you say it's just a bunch of acting, can you bring up other examples? Like what would you compare it to, maybe, or or what else do you feel that way about? Oh boy, I, I don't know if I could think about it right, right off the bat. It's just I was so overwhelmed by watching, uh, watching Matthew McConaughey act so hard, and just so obviously act. Um, and I love him. I really, I really do think he's great in most of what he does. And I understand why all there's there's all this buzz about Jared Leto Leto, um, and he was fine for most of it. But it, but it just feels like they're just doing a lot of acting. I don't know how to print. I don't know how to okay. describe it other than that. Okay. And I can't give you an example right off the bat. Okay. Kelly Wand, uh, how did you feel about this movie? Um, I'm always really impressed when people lose weight for roles, so it always like makes me want them to get their statue. But I kind of feel the same way Dingus did. I felt very like I spent most of it going good. Somebody's got to get fucking McConaughey's sandwich. This is getting, he looks terrible. He's, <laughs> he looks more and more skull-like. This is horrifying. I'm, I'm ner- I was nervous for him, and they had to shoot it really fast. 
and is very conscious of that. And so, it, and Jared Leto's character is an amalgam, I guess. Of I just felt like a very movieistic role. How do you pronounce that word? Movieistic. He's movieistic. <laughs> amalgam. Isn't that the name of the demon in Last Exorcism Season Part Two? Amalgam. Amalgam is also a. I believe it's also Phil Collins' song, or maybe it's Genesis. It's an aquatic animal. Aminal. Amalgam. Ambalam. Ambalal. Amberall. Um, but yeah, you know, it's not. It's also a fucking biopic. So it's a biopic about people who actors had to lose weight to play. So it's one of those. Mm-hmm. Do they really? So, <laughs> I mean, is that really necessary? I think it is yeah. because when you look at something we talked about, it's, for instance, Hunger Games, how voluptuous Jennifer Lawrence uh, is yeah, in, in a, a movie, point, and I think it it, it reads. I, I think it definitely helps the the performance. That sort of you know, like Robert De Niro getting all buff and supposedly tatted up, and like that. That's one kind of thing. But I, I think to get to emaciated, lose, yeah, like and, male and machinist. Exactly. Well, I mean, that, you, machinist. You by the way, that got drawn out for a long time. Like he had to lose that weight yeah. and keep it off for literally months on end, and then play fucking Batman. Batman. Right after it. Right. Um, well, and the same thing is true of Castaway. I mean, he had to lose all that weight, and they had to do two different shootings in order to show him at a different weight. He's getting in shape, though. That's different. And you don't you don't see that here. I mean, he's he's that emaciated the whole movie. And I I I don't think he had to, but I think it definitely helps. I, yeah. I'll definitely be the one going to, to bat for the movie, and certainly for his performance here, because yeah. I, I felt the, the the physical transformation that he went through. Matthew McConaughey doesn't have to prove himself to me. I I think the guy uh, gets way too much slack for doing that kind of not, not slack a uh, guff for doing that kind of magic Mike stuff, and for his uh, his dazed and confused performance, and just playing the Texas slacker. But I. Matthew McConaughey, after things like like Killer Joe, Killer Joe Naked yeah. Lawyer, um, Mud, uh, like he does not need to prove himself to me. But this movie just affirms that th- this guy is really, really good. And Dingus, when you say acting, I mean I agree with you, but I don't necessarily see that as as a, a bad thing. Uh, the connections that that he eventually achieves, I think, with Jared Leto. Uh, like I didn't feel that that was like forced or acting. I mean, it it felt like a, this meaningful transformation of this character, um, and it really helps. By the way, for me, when somebody is is a celebrity and I see them in a movie, that can be kind of an obstacle. But when he looks so grotesquely different than he normally does, it's like Kelly Wan sort of feeling like he needs a sandwich. There, there is a, a sort of a, a subconscious distress that you register when you see a familiar face looking that emaciated or that physically different. Um, and it, it for, for me, made this all the more powerful. Um, so I don't know if he had to lose the weight. I really appreciate that he did. Uh, and I think it added a lot to just me as a viewer watching uh, his performance. Um, uh, so, yeah. I'm sorry? Well, I, yeah, I agree with that. Like he is definitely the best reason to see the movie. Well, I I, I don't know about. Well, go ahead. Sorry, I, I don't want to cut you off there. Well, it's just it's one of those movies where I agree with the viewpoint mm-hmm. of the movie, probably. So it's sort of a you're waiting for the character to catch up to what the, the fact that it's a biopic about them. And I I really respond to movies about. Um, uh, ignorant or simple people learning to overcome their their prejudice or their ignorance or their simplicity. Like I really respond to this idea of the movie opening with him talking about Rock Hudson being a faggot, and there's there's obviously you know 
the movie makes it very clear early on we're seeing a room full of homophobes of just guys who just are throwing the word faggot around who are talking about cocksucker and you know and the the arc of the movie is him overcoming that and 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 having sympathy with what was a huge affliction to to the gay community and uh in in the 80s um so it had a historical place i i like the character arc of of him becoming wiser as he moves closer to death um so I really responded to, I mean, he was, you're right, Kelly Wan, one of the main reasons to see this, but also as a story about coming to terms in those early days of confusion and uncertainty about AIDS, coming to terms with a group of people who were often just written off and ridiculed. Uh, I, I really responded to that a lot. I, I think that might be one of the best reasons to see it. Um, is Maybe, how but... we as a nation kind of learned to accept and, and understand better the, the plight of homosexuals, and not just in the in terms of disease, but in terms of prejudice, in terms of being an, an excluded community, in terms of being misunderstood. Um, well, those stories move me, but they move me more, or rather less, when it's a it's someone who like he changes because he gets it. He gets right. the, he gets ostracized by all his friends. Same thing with Twelve Years a Slave. Like that guy was free, and then he gets kidnapped. That's the real story. It's like it's not even. I mean. A lot of people didn't even have that choice. And so he was sort of, I don't know, like he didn't have any options. And then the option he does choose is to make money out of it. And that, uh, yeah, so there, as, as a medical, as a, as a drama about medical ethics, too, I, I thought it was uh, really interesting. And, by the way, a far better story about... Uh, the state of healthcare than something that tries to talk about healthcare, like side effects or Elysium. Um, right. Uh, and, and even a microcosm of, you know, is he doing it out of the goodness of his heart? Is he trying to make a profit? Uh, is he breaking the law? Or is he uh, just sort of circum- looking for loopholes? Uh, I found that aspect fascinating. Um, and I think that is, you know, that raises questions about healthcare, which I, I think are valuable. And it's nice in a movie that isn't. Um, this movie can get a little preachy, and it does towards the end. But for the most part, it doesn't seem like it's setting out to be a preachy story about healthcare. Um, but I like what it ends up making you think about healthcare, the, the issues it forces you to consider. Um, and so I think that's another reason that. And Dingus, you're, you're right when you say like capital I important. For, for those reasons, I would also say yeah, it, it's. You know, you know, capital I important film. Um. Eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when we saw his Elysium, you said you kind of went off on a tear, but you you said a phrase that we had the best healthcare system in the world. Oh no, 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 good lord, no! I didn't say you that. said that. I swear you I did. said that in Maybe Elysium. Crazy. No, well, well I, yeah, we have the I, as far as the standards of healthcare. You know, we as a, as a prosperous nation can uh, we we have much higher levels of treatment. I don't think our system as a whole is the best one in the world. Okay. But you know, if you have a rare disease that needs to be treated, you come to the U.S. for it. If you are in the middle class, you are fucked. If you're in the U.S. and you're, yeah. you're looking for healthcare, so I don't think that we have the best system in the world. I do think we have. Uh, some of the best talent and technology in, in the world. We certainly, with all we certainly spend the most on it. Yeah. And we're 47th life expectancy globally. We're lower. It's 47th last year. Look at you rolling out the, the figures, Kelly Wand. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the things, too, is that by the end of the movie, it's doing this really glib thing where it's implying that the, the uh, National Institute of 
was it NIM? Was it mental health? Anyway, they're implying that the FDA and other government agencies are being paid by by big pharma. Like right. it, it, I think that bit is really glib, and I didn't really need that. But but I really did like the early issues that that you know where, where they talk about you know like it or not, this is a business, and and it's very clear that doing these double blind tests, these trials, these controlled trials. Where Matthew McConaughey says you give dying people sugar pills, uh, or maybe it's I forget what character, but that, I think that's what the line he has. Where yes, that's what we do, and and that's part of what you have to do to make sure that drugs like AZT are safe. Um, you know the the dilemma that we face. Like it seems like it, it has some very thoughtful approaches to the situation that we face to dealing with AIDS, and even as he is creating this business, this cooperative. You know, he has to struggle with things like the poor kid who shows up with only 50 bucks. He gets turned away. Um, you know, he has to come to terms with some of these decisions that as a nation, the country also has to come to terms with. Um, and I, I really enjoyed some of that. Uh, and I really enjoyed yeah. how, you know, how it told a story about one man facing this and uh, and how the, the larger ethical dilemma was focused on him uh, and, and this group that he founds. But is the issue just like... Is it paperwork complexity? Because it's like they're pushing no, it's, a drug. No, it's not paperwork complexity. It's just corruption. And it's, and it's not corruption. It's 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 bureaucracy, and it's also territory and power and money. I mean, and I don't know that you would you would necessarily label that as corruption in the same way as you would say, where have all these billions of dollars gone to, like creating the Olympic Village in Russia? Is is you know the, it's government agencies fighting to keep keep their turf in order you know i mean in order to why can't they just sell better stuff <laughs> like why can't they just take the peptide market from them and go all right you seem to be good at distributing this like let's just co-opt your thing well, because, so because I, I mean i i would i mean i would assume that a lot of those people who work in government are legitimately trying to look out for the public good but sometimes that ship just moves too slowly and it, it certainly moved too slowly for this particular character, or for a lot of the characters who were going through this difficulty in that in that part of time, where there were so many things going against the progress of medicine because of bigotry, because of a, a variety of things. But I would assume that a lot of the the scientists or the doctors who are working in the FDA have the best of intentions because they want to protect people. I mean, if if they approve AZ2 too quickly, maybe that will kill people, or maybe that will hinder the. I mean, I I understand both sides of it, and I like that Tom brings that up, and I like that the that the movie brings up that dilemma. I just don't really appreciate the filmmaking. Uh, I, I, you know, again, I said that as much as I do like the the relationship between um, between Ronnie and uh, Ray, um, I I love that relationship. I just felt like the acting was so overwhelming. Except again, for there's one one character I really thought was real. The and the others I I saw flashes of moments. I appreciate what Matthew McConaughey's doing. I appreciate his power. I agree with Tom. He doesn't need to prove himself, but I feel that this movie is all about proving himself. Yeah, I mean that's uh, I, I, yeah, I totally. I mean, I don't know when you say proving himself. Like, how is that different from say Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln, for for instance, or uh, or Christian Bale in The Hustler, or even Tweedledee Geofor in Twelve Years a Slave? Like, what? 
I, I guess I don't understand like what makes a great performance and what makes it in your term like just acting. Uh, uh, maybe maybe I'm putting it the wrong way. I don't think there's anything wrong with an actor proving himself uh, or looking for a role that will get him a, a, an Academy Award or whatever. Um, I just think it's a showpiece, and that's fine. I mean, but it's just that I see. I see the puppet strings. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to put it. I, I see the acting in this movie most of the time. I just, whenever he's in a scene, um, I see him acting. Even in the scene where he's sitting there with Jennifer Garner having a glass of wine, I see the acting. And I, I don't necessarily, you know, I, I see it in Magic Mike, but I don't mind it because he's putting on such a show. Um, I don't see it in Mud. I, I just see the acting here. And Sitting there watching it, it got on my nerves. I don't know why. But is it because he lost the weight and you can't ignore it, and it just feels like it's detracting from your ability? To not, not necessarily. I mean, I, you know, what Tom said is right. The the weight loss is absolutely important to this. But, uh, but I just see, I, I just see the the gears moving, and it's bothersome to me. But he's, you know? it's like compared to like Chloe Grace Moritz in Carrie, where she's supposed to be a misfit, except she's a hot blonde. I'm not really this goofy, you guys know. Come on. It's me, Chloe Grace Moritz. Hello. Are you saying you sense that in that well that's clearly a sense of an actress being lost. I mean there's yeah, this, I have no there's idea. This, there's this no, but it's also like uh it's dissolving into the part versus like oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Well I so to not kind of it doesn't dissolve into the part, it's just that I see it I see all the wheels turning constantly. It's it just feel it feels I, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. I don't know what that means. Yeah, like but, I, I I can understand, like I've certainly seen performances like that where it just seems like an actor's kind of punching above his weight class. But that's kind of what I'm saying when I, I feel like he doesn't need to prove himself is I think McConaughey has been at this weight class for a long time and and whether it is a kind of a trifle like Lincoln Lawyer, which is a sort of a genre picture, and he's just so good and naturalistic and easy in it, or something really creepy where he's almost like a horror movie character like Killer Joe, or something like this where like, like a couple of scenes in this that I just thought were just vin- just some of the best stuff he's ever done. When they tell him that he has AIDS, you know, the, the scene with, with Jennifer Garner and Dennis O'Hare, when they've got the, the, the masks on their faces and just his disbelief and he thinks that it's the same as being called gay. Like that scene right there where it's before he's supposed to be doing the typical – like they kind of, because it's a biopic, it does this thing where he kind of becomes saintly by the time it's over and that, that yeah. goes with the territory. I'm okay with that. But early on when he is just an, an irredeemable homophobe and he's being told that he had AIDS, I loved that scene. And the scene where he takes his pistol and he's driving and I, I forget – I forget if he's on his way to Mexico, but at one point it's just him stopping the car and crying. Yeah, I loved like that, that scene. I mean, I thought that you was like never see actors do that anymore. And and it's such an ugly cry too. And it, yeah. it, it he just looks so despairing and just every you know his face is so gaunt and the the way the 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 lines under his eyes are drawn. I mean, he just he just looks horrible and so heartfelt. Um, so I, you know, I. I I guess I can. I, I certainly respect what you're saying, Dingus, but it absolutely worked for me. You know, strings or not, gears or not, uh, it was just at times so incredibly effective. Um, and even the the late, like I, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I know they knew what they had here. And and this almost gets to what what Dingus is saying. I know when they were planning this scene out, when it was written, when they're shooting it, that they clearly knew what it was going to go for, and it 
at the end of the scene, it was a little pushing it a little bit too far. But man, did I just love the scene where he and Jared Leto are shopping because it was such this great, adorable little domestic uh, situation. You know, they're shopping for food and they've accepted each other and they have this easy banter going. And I know that they were shooting it like a husband and wife scene and it was adorable. And, And, you know, gears turning or not acting or not, it just felt so real and touching. And yeah, it did the goofy thing where then he twists the guy's arm and makes him shake Jared Leto's hand, whatever. At least he didn't slug him. That's what I thought it was going to be. It's just a yeah. boring punch. But uh, man, I loved that scene. Um, I loved it too. Uh, up, up until that mo- and I, I was so happy they didn't do the slugging too, but where he's like, you know, th- that's process. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that that whole thing where he's, where he's uh, forcing Jared uh, what is this, Raylene? Rayon, Rayon, Rayon. Thank you, Rayon, to, to put the food back because it's not any good. That, that's processed. Yeah, that whole thing. I love. I really loved that. It was very, for me, it was just, it was just simple and it was domestic. And I really, really liked that. I liked that element of the relationship. And I liked a lot of that stuff that about their business partnership and those types of things. I did really like their their relationship and and how that worked i guess i don't know maybe i've been poisoned by hearing how great jared uh jared leto is in this movie and all that um and just i don't know I, uh, maybe this the whole all the oscar drive and everything has poisoned me a little bit um, it's kind of a cliche role i, I kind of think i agree with you more on that. jared leto or, or matthew mcconaughey yeah no jared leto I had no idea he was going to – I thought he was going to be a good old boy. Like I had no idea. When he showed up, I was just so tickled at him in that hospital. Like, Because he, you know, he's a good-looking fella. Uh, and I just thought they were going to try to make him look like a cowboy and have him grow a mustache. So I was looking forward to him appearing at some point <laughs> when he showed up <laughs> like that. Uh, and you got to admit, he, uh, he looks pretty nice in a skirt. He looks he great. <laughs> and, I, and I like the way it's I, – I really couldn't – before I say anything, uh, Tom, how'd you feel about Jennifer Garner? Um, they didn't put a lot of makeup on her. They were t- kind of trying to make Try. her up a little bit, but uh, I could have done without her. I definitely could have done without her. I know you're a big fan of Jennifer Garner, uh, but that, that character didn't really seem necessary. It's a thankless for me. role. Mostly. It was kind of yeah. There wasn't a lot there, so. But that's the thing about Jerry Lito too. Like I think he, he's not that he's bad. I guess I always blame the writing. And it seems like this, the scenes Dingus is taking the biggest issue with are the ones where the writing crept in, and then well, the, the connection with you know with Jennifer Garner felt the more felt like a more forced one, you know, where he's having dinner brings to the picture that his mom made, which I still you know I was totally into the movie at that point, so I found that very touching. But I felt like her character was was certainly kind of forced, and they didn't give her much to do. Uh, so Dingus, as, as a resident Jennifer Garner. As our resident Jennifer Garner fan, Dingus, how did you feel about Jennifer Garner? Uh, I felt like it, it, let's take a pretty girl and put glasses on her, and now she's a doctor. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to believe the scientific stuff she says, and I never believed a thing she said. Um, I, I, I mean, I really love, I love her as an actress. I think that she, you know, she deserved a nomination for what she did in Juno. I thought she was awesome in that movie. She was. Um, yeah, she, she, I know. <laughs> how dare you? Um, but it's not until uh, she has that scene where you realize that she's she's a high school classmate of uh, Rayon's that I really liked her, and that was mainly because of 
what he endows upon her, uh, the, the importance he gives her in that scene, you know, where he's sitting across from her and, and they're talking about the guy who walks down the hall. Oh, he was in our, he was in my econ class and, or whatever, the home ec. Um, I really like what he does for her in that scene. Otherwise I just, I just felt like, why are you here? And we just have to believe because you wear glasses and a lab coat that you're a doctor. Uh, yeah. Let me tell you two people I also could have done without. Uh, I, I love me some Steve Zahn, but the guy's just a little too goofy. Yeah. I guess he, I, he's, the, you know, he's the only cop in town, too. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Dallas. His, his entire beat is Dallas. <laughs> If there's a problem in Dallas, Officer Zahn is there. Your um, beat is when this guy has a problem, you show right. up. You just wait. His arc's predictable. Garner's is predictable. Yeah. But here's uh, – and we've talked before about uh, where casting is a spoiler. Uh, there's a couple of character actors in this movie who I really like. And uh, Dennis O'Hare, uh, that that guy, you, you see him a lot. Um, he, he plays the doctor. Uh, he actually, in a movie called Rocket Science, gets to do some really, really good stuff that he doesn't normally get to do. I love him in Rocket Science. Um, but he plays the doctor, and the moment he comes on screen, you know, oh, this is going to be the ineffectual, bureaucratic guy who's un- unsympathetic. Right. Uh, and then there's another actor named Michael O'Neill. I actually had to look his name up. But uh, he's from countless TV shows and movies, and he plays the, again, I guess the only, is he State Department or Border uh, enforcement. I don't know what he was or the FDA. He's the FDA, he's the FDA guy. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's also hanging out at the border there, ready to to talk to any priests who have too many. Or, yeah, he seemed to be omnipresent. He also shows up at town meetings. I didn't understand. So anyway, those are like spoiling casters, where where you know, okay, these are going to be our convenient punching bag villains for the for ineffectual bureaucracy by the end of the movie. Um, but I was okay with them because I like both of those actors a lot. Yeah. Here's. I don't know if he was a character actor or a local hire. Here's what should have been a great scene that was killed by someone they plopped down in a chair who had no idea what he was doing, who had no idea how to connect with anyone, didn't even look up his name because I don't care. The scene where Jared Leto goes to his father, the actor they got to play his father, <sighs> what the heck was that? I, the, I just was I don't astonished. think that scene was even necessary. I don't, you know, there's a lot of scenes like that in this movie. I don't think that scene was even necessary other yeah. than Let's see Jared Leto in a cool man suit. I mean, and that guy was, yeah, you're right. The dialogue in that scene. I just couldn't, I mean, that should have been a powerful scene. No, Jared Leto going to see his father, and, and that's where they should have put an actor like Dennis O'Hare or Michael O'Neill, who really knows what he's doing. Instead, I don't know who that dude was, but he didn't know what he was doing. He did not he know how to, to say anything. He doesn't get to say anything, but he, he should still have some sort of meaning. Or there should be some kind of connection, or at least an opinion about what this character is doing. I mean, it just goes to show that if you were to put an actual actor in there who knew what he was doing, that scene could have worked. And I agree with you, Dingus, it did seem extraneous anyway. But it was, in addition to being extraneous, it was terrible because of that dude. Uh, <laughs> good well, guy. you know, it's <laughs> uh, that's deck stacked against him. And I'm also, there's a lot of those scenes in this movie, though, like the one where Garter, Garter's money shot scene is she go, and this always happens, uh, it was surprising, they go to the boardroom and she's all, oh, right, we want you to resign. <laughs> like, I'm not going to, you have to fire me. Yeah, and what's her party leaves, words? What are her party yeah. words? Give them to us. You'll have to fire me? No. It's something like, well, fuck all y'all. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. He says that, and it's so tough. And then there's the reaction of like, oh, what? Ah, got us. They got pwned. Right. They didn't see that coming. They thought, she's got to back down. We go, you should resign. Mm-hmm. And we just stand there and stare. Uh, to call out one, one little part that I really did like, though, 
uh, is uh, Griffin Dunn. I thought Griffin Dunn was awesome in this movie. I that was Griffin Dunn, the doctor? He's Dr. He's Dr. Voss, and I loved him. Oh, my I God. I had no idea. That's awesome. I just thought, this guy's the first real thing, and I guess they just got some dude to do this. I didn't even recognize him until I... The Mexican doctor raising yeah. the, the moths was Griffin Dunn. Right. He's, he's no, you guys are pulling my leg. Seriously? That's Griffin Dunn? Yeah, that's Griffin Dunn. Fantastic. I didn't even notice it, but I just loved him. I was like, oh, okay. As soon as we get to that scene, now, I... I didn't understand why we have to go in the room with the moths. It was weird, uh, but I really loved him whenever he was on screen. I, I just I felt relaxed. I was like, "Oh, here's a real person," and it turned out to be Griffin Dunn. <laughs> yeah, that's no real huh. person, Dingus. That was an actor. Yep. <laughs> Wait, what was with the moths? I didn't get that. Well, I, I so here's another issue. So they, those- they had all watched uh, Upstream Color, and they decided to do something along those lines. Um, well, the, as, it, as it goes on, in addition to it becoming a very earnest biopic, and we're going to sanctify him, and he's going to sell That's his car. For, uh, I also took a issue with a. I mean, it, it just seemed a little weird that there uh, that the idea seemed to be that if you've got uh, AIDS, you can stave off HIV by just uh, clean living and whatever that that protein was. And, and vitamins and minerals. Um, and then later on in the movie, they're talking about uh, uh, the, the the caterpillar secretions or whatever. Um, like I just so it's like the fountain. I don't know a lot about the actual <laughs> dude or the actual buyers club or, or or even the the medical history of, of treating AIDS. I don't know a lot about that. But it seemed like there was a lot of kind of wishful science, wishful thinking, junk science. I, I was just skeptical. You know, is this really the right way to be treating people who have AIDS? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. But when, when they're talking about caterpillar secretions, uh, I was like, really? <laughs> well, wait, maybe well, that's the real thing. Well, I think he was he was lucky to run into that doctor when he did. Because because AZT is, is useful, but it has to be used in a cocktail. And they didn't know that at the time. Right. I mean, it's so toxic that you have to balance it. And so this doctor's like, don't use this at all. Use all of these other things. And once all of these things get balanced out, it will work out. I mean, that's why uh, he ended up surviving as long as he did, is that he used this other drug from wherever. Well, but he also injected himself with something that gave him a heart attack at some point. I mean, it just seemed like a really sloppy way. The the inferon that he got from Japan. But I mean, yeah. You're yeah, right. and and so I when it, and and at one point it's like oh antifungals let's do that like it just really seemed like a lot of sad casting about which I can certainly understand in that situation, but I just it I, it, it seemed to be presenting this idea that he knew better than the FDA and Dr. Dennis O'Hare who's a jerk and big pharma um, when I got the sense that he was just he was fumbling around just as much uh, and right. furthermore he was selling it to other people this fumbling around um, and so just as, as someone who is kind of sensitive to junk science that sort of tripped a few flags for me and two I, weeks in a row too two weeks in a row what well just because last week was also like the the chick who works there knows everything that the her boss oh, does. I was thinking, yeah exactly kelly one i thought first i thought you were referencing i frank we're taking on that's just science no that's she was clearly an i frankenstein the world's preeminent bio oh, yeah, three weeks in a row you're right <laughs> plus jack ryan that's four wait so i can still take azt recreationally though right <laughs> 
Uh, and so, Dingus, you, you, it sounded like you were making disparaging remarks about the direction. Uh, I, oh, yes. I don't think we've seen anything else that this guy has done. Um, were you not happy with how it, it was directed? No, I really wasn't. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it's, it, it's hard to, do, to sort of distinguish between the direction and the Antony as far as this is concerned, but it's, it just felt like a lot of it was slapped slapped together in a weird way uh and i i didn't understand some of the 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 weird sort of way some of the various bits were put together especially early on like when he goes to his trailer and he shoots open the door and he's looking for various bits of cash and and it a lot of it for me just feels um stitched together uh and so yeah i really didn't appreciate the way it was directed uh especially especially when we get to that weird sort of bull riding and the freeze frame and i i, I didn't really uh, you know i i as much as i talked about i talked against the sort of feeling of i'm i'm looking at the acting i mean i think that his performance is amazing um but it's just i feel like the director can do things to not make that so obvious and i think that a lot of that acting and a lot of that editing is a, is a mistake uh, I, I'm going to go on record as saying I loved the editing. I loved the way they cut around his his illness and the way that when he would just faint, he would collapse. I loved the first one that it would just go to black. I love the first one where it goes to black and you expect it's going to be later someone's found him and it just comes back up right where he fell. You know, nobody has come to help him. Uh, I liked some of the jump cutting when he was like looking for the money. I loved the cut to him as the priest dressed up to the cut to him in the office where he's been busted. Um, I, I quite like the editing and even made a note that I really liked some of those cuts and even the direction, you know, a lot of handheld stuff made to look like natural lighting. Um, but I felt like the director had a good eye for occasional detail. I mean, you're right. It was very performance centric, a lot of just cameras and faces, but there were, there was, there was a couple of moments like early on where, it would show Matthew McConaughey looking at a wall, and it would cut to the wall, and it would cut back to him, and it would cut to the wall, and you would realize, oh, he's looking at the calendar, you know, because he's been told he has 30 days. Um, I loved that early on. I loved, for some reason, there's a shot in a strip club of him looking at a dead frog in the bottom of an aquarium. I loved that. Um, I quite liked the moth room in Mexico. I don't know the point of it. Um, I couldn't stand that. It just felt like uh, all I could think about was Silence of the Lambs. Why are we? Why is he doing this? Oh, the director thinks that's a pretty image. I, ugh. Well, it's sort of you know you get the sense that they're down there and they're you, you know they're trying moth secretions and <laughs> he walks into the room full of butterflies and he's going to stand there in a Christ pose with moths on him. I mean, sure. Uh, I liked the clown imagery, you know, the rodeo clown and the, the doctor, you know, Dennis O'Hare wearing the clown tie with the kids. And there's a scene where he's like looking at a clown statue uh, as just this, you know, everybody's ridiculous kind of thing. When when you're faced with dying in 30 days, how everything else seems ridiculous. Uh, I liked some of those shots of clowns. Uh, and then you got to dress up for it. <laughs> for <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, I love when, he act- he, when he's accidentally masturbating to Mark Bowden. Oops. <laughs> I really like that scene. That was Tom, that was Boy George. How dare you? <laughs> um, but it, it did make me want to see like what else this guy has done and I didn't, you know, I I didn't I don't know any of his other movies. Uh but it made me think, I hope this opens doors for this fella. Uh, I liked where he was going. Um, I have the complexion for Rodeo Clown but not the agility. One, two, three, Jesus. Finally. There 
Kelly wanted to enjoy the view. Uh, <laughs> well, all right, just bring the room down. Go ahead. Yeah. All right, after our upbeat discussion of uh, Dallas Buyers Club, that crazy rollicking comedy, um, we're now going to talk about our three-way three of our favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moments in movies since he died just recently. Well, I picked fun ones, so it'll bring the room back up. Oh, good. There's only fun ones, aren't there? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Kelly, you're introducing next week's 3 by 3 so why don't you start us off with your number three pick for a favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moment? Uh, that's a fun do. one. Good, okay. It's my favorite performance by him. Okay, I'm going to do a line from it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you're a quick study, aren't you? Last time you didn't know your ass from your elbow, and now you give me directions. That's not fair. You probably do know your ass from your elbow. I'll see you. <laughs> Remember? Was that your Philip Seymour Hoffman? <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get down from McConaughey. Get off that horse. <laughs> but actually, it's not even the thing I did. That was just a line to orient you to my actual favorite thing in the scene, which is when he plays the piano to Matt Damon in The Fabulous oh. Mr. Blee. It's not fabulous. It's talented. <laughs> talented. The marvelous Mr. Ripley. I believe. It's Mr. Ripley. The Avenger Mr. Ripley. The Mr. Ripley. Uh, uh, I I don't remember that movie very well, and I don't what? I didn't remember he was in it. It's Jude Law and Matt Damon, right? And doesn't Matt Damon hit Jude Law with an oar? Yeah, with that's all, all I remember. Is Gwyneth Paltrow in that? Uh, yeah. He doesn't hit her with anything. And is it directed hit- by the English Patient dude, or did I just make that yeah. up? Yeah, you're right. Oh, that's all I re- I've now told you everything I remember about the talented Mr. Ripley. You didn't read those books? No, I don't read Patricia Highsmith. No. I just see her movies. I really didn't like that movie. I don't even remember him, but, yeah. It's not who, as good as the books. The, what's the name of the uh, director? He died. Mangella. Ah, uh, Anthony Mangella. Very good. I, don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I kept thinking of Michael and John Joe. But even if you didn't like the movie, you'd like his character in it, because he's really annoying. So tell us about his character. He plays a piano? Well, see, to me, I it's a, it's I find annoying people really difficult. So I'm really amazed when I see like a virtuoso actor who can just like summon that up just by playing a, p- a couple piano keys, making like an eye gesture with his eyeballs. So is he one of Jude Law's rich friends or something? Yeah, yeah Fred Miles. Oh, he like shows up and he like brings the room. He just like he co-ops the. Uh, <clears throat> You didn't see it. You didn't like the movie, Tom. Sorry. I do. I don't remember it that well. I, uh, I prefer the John Malkovich Ripley. Oh, I do too, actually. That's weird. Are you Are you joking? Me? No. Here, hold my watch. <laughs> of that scene. <laughs> I was surprised uh, at how good that movie was. Yeah. What's that called, Dingus? Jeez, I don't even remember. I just remember watching it and being so surprised. Well, Full Soul Weapons died in that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kelly, why you're right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Readers, but yeah. So, uh, all right. So, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing. Does does he fake? Is it a non-fake physical gesture when he plays the piano, Kelly? Wand. <laughs> I'm so upset right now. <laughs> Quivering. 
I can't believe how much fucking Sandler shit I'm gonna have to hear on you people too. So go on. <laughs> well, Dingus, are you gonna disappoint him? Give us your number three favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moment. Uh, here's here's a quote from it. Uh, guess who is this close to a nomination to state senate, which is this close to one step from Congress? I don't want to get a lot of movies. Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, so I'm just gonna say action. Wait a minute, you're next. Why am I even doing this? Why am I next? <laughs> because it's my top. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's go ahead with your number three before I fix the order here. Let me scratch out. Um, things. All right, so we're on yours, so go ahead and finish off. So <laughs> he's getting, This is the worst. <laughs> he's being appointed to a political office. I feel better he's, about my number three now. Oh. Um, it's Clark Gregg who actually says this line. Oh, What? Is Clark Gregg in with Philip Seymour Hoffman? What's happening? He's in, a, he's in a movie called State in Maine. And, um, I've never seen that one. You've never is seen State in Maine? No. Isn't that weird? We haven't seen each other's Philip Seymour Hoffman movies. I have seen yours. I just didn't like it. But um, that's, that's what I meant by you guys. So Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the writer. The, the movie's about trying to get a movie made basically, uh, in a little town, in a small little town. Um, and uh, he's the writer of the movie, and he's sort of hapless. Uh, he has this great first line where he's like, I, I lost my typewriter. That's his first line. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things I love about him in this movie is, is he, is he p- kind of plays doll. Um, and it's difficult to do that when you're an interesting person, but he is so good at it. And there's this great moment where he's he's gone on this long walk with Rebecca Pigeon, uh, and he's clearly kind of flirting with her and falling for her and falling for this little town, and and he's not quite all Hollywood yet because he's a writer, he's a playwright, and he's fallen for her because she runs a bookstore and she knows who he is. She has his play on the shelves there, and that surprises him. And she's got this porch swing on her porch, and and he sits there and he's and he's just having a nice time. And then Clark Gregg, her fiance, shows up, and there's oh. this moment where she says, "This is and and there's this horrible." I mean, David Mamet is not the greatest director in the world. Um, and Rebecca Pigeon certainly is not the greatest actor in the world. Uh, where Rebecca Pigeon does that, oh, th- and this is uh, 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 where she has a hard time remembering her fiance's name. Isn't it uh, Tom? <laughs> I, I, nope, I don't even remember. It is Tom. I remembered that. I think. Go right. ahead. Sorry. Though. Um, and so she introduces him, and and he he doesn't even notice that she's she's had this problem, and because he's excited about Clark Gregg is excited about showing up to tell her that he's got this political career that's coming up and he says this line about guess who is this close to a nomination and they have this weird three way pause where it sort of focuses on Philip Seymour Hoffman and they they're looking at him and Clark Gregg you see his eyes shift from him to her to him and she looks at him and Philip Seymour Hoffman does does just does this thing it's like I don't know what's going on here I was into her. You're her fiance. So much is going on in this moment. He's not quite Hollywood yet, but he's getting there. And he doesn't even answer the question of the guess who. He just says, well, it was a pleasure to meet you guys and walks away. Uh, I, I really love his performance in the movie, but I love that particular moment uh, as just that moment where he doesn't even say anything. It's just him reacting to Clark Gregg's guess who. <laughs> Uh, true story. Clark Gregg's name in State and Maine, I just now remembered, 
is Doug McKenzie. Oh, it is Doug McKenzie. That's right. When she says Doug McKenzie, you're like, whoa. <laughs> nice work, David Mamet. <laughs> was that deliberate? Is that Was that Mamet doing? I'm sure Mamet's really acquainted with sketches from SCTV. Do you like Patrick O'Brien? <laughs> Did you like that movie? Tom, I couldn't get into State in Maine. State in Maine? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it has the immortal lines from Alec Baldwin, so that happened. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and isn't it is it William H Macy who's the director? What's he, what does he play in that? Yeah, he, no, he plays the producer. Okay. The the director is a is a guy who's doing some sort of weird accent. I don't remember who he is. But William H Macy I, is just a really uh, is a is a, a whirlwind character, right? Like he's oh yeah, like uh, yeah, I love William H Macy in that. Yeah. He's like constantly trying to convince uh, Sarah Jessica Parker right. just to take her top off and whatnot. Right. Ugh. Or maybe <laughs> too late. Oof. Maybe he's the director and the other guy's the cinematographer. The guy's constantly talking about shooting through the window of the firehouse. Well, Kelly Wan, there you go. There's a, a movie you should see. I think I get it mixed up with Town and Country. That's a it's magazine. Hand. It's actually a van. It's too... oh, I'm so confused. Uh, so my number three is... Uh, yeah, so what, I, what I've done is that, like Philip Seymour Hoffman is known for a couple of things, one of which is just being his intelligence, like you, you mentioned, Dink. It's like it's hard for... It's not hard for him, but he plays dull in a few movies, but mainly he's like a really... a fiercely intelligent guy. You think of him like in Mission Impossible 3. Like that's sort of one of his main qualities. But also he does a lot of stuff that is uh, very vulnerable and sad and kind of pathetic. So... Yeah. What, what I went for were three things that were very different from that. Um, not his usual kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman roles. Uh, and one of them, I'm going to have to uh, go on a tangent briefly. Uh, I, 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 was, I was certain I'd told this story on the podcast before, so bear with me if you've heard this before. But when I first moved to Los Angeles and was doing this stupid actor thing, I got called in to, to an audition for a movie about people who chase tornadoes. Uh, and I didn't know anything about it. It hadn't been cast or anything. And I come in to read for it. And when you come in to read for something like that, they'll just give you a snippet of, of dialogue, like a page or so from the script. And you'll read it with some guy who's been standing there reading it all day with actors who come in. And you've got the casting people and there's maybe a producer there and they sit and they watch you read. And if they like what you're doing, they'll call you back to do it again so that higher level producers and maybe the director can see you. So this is very early preliminary stages for the movie Twister. Um, and I went in to read, and I'm just reading with this random guy who's – he's not an actor. It's his job to just read the dialogue with everyone. And they give you a scene, even though you're obviously – and I didn't know this at the time – you're obviously not going to be cast for that part. You know, They're just looking for people who can do little tiny parts, who can speak dialogue without sounding like an idiot. Uh, but so they give me a scene with Bill, uh, Bill Paxton's character – I forget his name – and a character named Dusty. Uh, and the scene is that Bill <laughs> Paxton, Twister. Uh, the scene is that Bill Paxton, who's a, a world-renowned tornado chaser, who's finally coming back to the gang for whatever reason, uh, and the gang, Dusty's one of this tornado chasing gang. They're really pleased to see him. So the scene has him coming out and coming into the room or whatever, and everybody's like, "Hey, how are you doing? It's so good to see you again. Oh man, you were cool." And it's just that kind of ebullience uh, at a returning friend. So I'm reading with the one dude there, and 
he comes in and says something, you know, the character's supposed to say, hey, how is everyone? And Dusty is supposed to say, hey, the extreme, because that's his nickname, the extreme. <laughs> Dusty says, hey, the extreme. And then Bill Paxton's character, who I didn't know was Bill Paxton at the time, says, how are you doing, Dusty? And Dusty says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. How are you doing? And, and so it's just dialogue like that back and forth. So a lot of times when they'll give you these little script things, the formatting is rudimentary. There can be some misspellings. Things can be out of order. Whatever. It'll happen. So they give me the dialogue, and it says, hey, the extreme. And then Bill Paxton's line is, hey, Dusty, how are you? And in the middle, it has a stage direction. And stage directions are formatted very differently from dialogue, and that's obvious. Uh, and the stage direction is a manly handshake ensues. <laughs> and, you know, when you're reading, you never know what to do. Wait, so are you I, sure that wasn't dialogue? Well, it was formatted like dialogue, but it was obviously a mistake because okay. that's not – nobody talks that way. And that, that's not something that you would say out loud. It's obviously a stage direction. You know, stage directions are he nods gravely or uh, they approach the corpse. So, you know, that's a stage direction. A manly handshake ensues. You know, it's the, the writer imagining what the scene would look like. So, but it's it's formatted like dialogue even though clearly it's not dialogue. So I get to, hey, the extreme – and I'm sitting there with this guy, and I'm waiting for him to do his line, and he's just looking at me. And he's and I'm waiting, and I'm like, okay, fine, if I'll if I'll just wait for him to do his line. These these people watching are, it, realize that I don't have the next line. He has the next line. He's the one looking like a retard here, not me. I know what I'm doing. So I'm sitting there looking at him, and he finally says to me, and I'm doing the scene with him. He finally says to me, "You've got another line." And I, I look down, and I say, "A manly handshake ensues like that." Like he thinks I'm. I'm supposed to say that? Nobody says that. I look down and say, a manly handshake ensues, realizing that the people watching the audition are going to think this guy is ridiculous for expecting me to say that. So I said, a manly handshake ensues? And then he says the next line, hey, how are you, Dusty? And I had no idea what to do at that point. Like, I wanted to stop and say, he just read a stage direction. <laughs> it's misformatted. <laughs> it's not dialogue. I, I just want you guys to know that. I That was not my intent to read it like a question. He's the one that made me do that. Um but I didn't. I read the scene. I got out of there. Whatever. Never heard back from them. So I was not cast in Twister. That's no big surprise. But then fast forward to uh, Twister coming out and being released. It's a Rennie Harlan movie. It had a big special effects budget. And you go see a movie about crazy tornadoes and stuff. Dusty is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Phil Paxton <laughs> is the extreme. So I go to see, and you can Google this scene. It's online. If you don't want to watch all of Twister, and I don't recommend it. Twister's terrible. Bill Paxton gets out of a van, and everybody's like, hey, you're here. And Philip Seymour Hoffman says, the extreme. And he runs over to Bill Paxton. He kneels before him, and he's not shaking his hand. And he takes his hand like a squire commit, you know, uh, swearing fealty to a knight. And he says, a manly handshake ensues. In the movie, for whatever reason, the formatting, they shot that way. Somebody didn't, nobody ever said this isn't dialogue, it's a stage direction. This comes to Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't know if he called it into question, but he actually did it in the movie and he did this weird, ridiculous, absurd thing, but he completely committed to it. Like he knelt before Bill Paxton and he says out loud, a manly handshake ensues. He's not even are shaking you, his hand at that point. He's gripping his hand when he wait, says Wait, are you sure the screenwriter's not a genius? The thing is, Dusty doesn't talk that way. Like, Dusty is not narrating the things that are happening. That's not part of what he does. He also and, doesn't talk in third tense for no reason. Right, and you clearly see when you have <laughs> the script that it's a formatting error. Uh, but I just love at some point, Philip Seymour Hoffman gets this part, and he's like – 
Dusty is such a it's such a stupid character. It's just this guy who's supposed to be just loud and enthusiastic, and he's supposed to explain the backstory of Bill Paxton's character. Uh, like it's a thankless role, but he's so committed to it. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I kind of um, wish you had got the part instead. <laughs> and Philip Seymour Hoffman's watching it, going, "Fuck that guy." Does he come out at the end and go fade out as he kneels before you? You would expect exactly if they had formatted that incorrectly, they probably would have had someone say that dialogue. But with yeah. the writer, the like Rennie Harlan. Oh yeah, wait, who am I kidding? It's Rennie Harlan. Rennie Harlan, director of Kellen Lutz's Legend of Hercules. You you would think. Handshake ensues. I was the one who discovered Mr. Hoffman that day. His manly handshake line. Uh, if if you Google a manly handshake ensues, you will find the scene from Twister because it's just so ridiculous that they. Uh, that makes me wonder if most lines are stage direction misunderstood. Huh? That's interesting. So there you go. That's my number three favorite uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman moment. Tom drops his pipe. <laughs> I dropped my pipe, Watson. Hey, who's that chick kid? A pipe falls upon the stage, Watson. Mm. Uh, Kelly, what, what is your number two favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moment? Oh, I have to go off on a tangent on this. Uh, <laughs> I've seen a movie at the time. And, uh, told the usher uh, $5. <laughs> and he was also the cashier. But seriously, if I can bring the house down, I like the beginning of Mission Impossible 3 because I was pretending that they were both reprising their Magnolia characters. (laughs) Wow. That's my number two. All right. Uh, So now that we switch the order, Dingus, I'm going to do my number two pick, and then we'll go to yours. Go for it. Uh, my number two pick is, and uh, we've mentioned this on the 3x3 three three before, there's a movie called Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, where uh, he is married to Marissa Tomei, and in the course of the movie, she leaves him, and he throws a tantrum and trashes the apartment. And when you imagine Philip Seymour Hoffman doing that, he's, he's a fellow who is completely capable of, of those kind of dramatic fireworks. You know, he could probably tear up an apartment like you wouldn't believe. But the way he does it, and Before the Devil devil knows you're dead uh this this quiet slow tantrum and quietly slowly trashing his apartment is just an amazing piece of work uh and it it just goes to show what an intense actor he is that even being kind of passive very meticulous uh there's this undeniable intensity in that scene he he takes a a bowl of uh, ornamental rocks and he picks it up and just slowly dumps them out he slowly pulls the sheets off of his bed, slowly turns over the mattress. Uh, I just Which love movie? that scene. Uh, Sidney Lumet, I never used is to say Is that snorts paint thinner? No, but he is an opium addict. I don't think it's heroin, but and that's you know that's particularly painful. I imagine to to see that at this point. Uh, no, he's brothers with Ethan Hawke, and it's kind of a this sounds trite, but it's kind of a, a crime drama. Um, and it's uh, Sidney Lumet's last movie, I think. A crite drama. Mm, what? <laughs> oh, crime and trite. But it's not a trite movie. The, the thing I love about the movie is that it becomes this kind of Greek tragedy about a family by the time it's over. Um, the fellow who wrote it, uh, I want to say Kevin MacDonald, but that's not right. Uh, the fellow who wrote it has a new... <laughs> the Kids from the Hall guy was what he wanted to say, but go on. Oh. No, who's the, isn't there, who's the guy who directed The Fugitive? Uh, Andrew Bergman. No, John McTiernan. No, no I think you're right about our Andrew Bergman. 
Well, uh, it's not it's not that guy. Though. Well, anyway, the writer of Before the Devil Knows You're Dead has recently uh, his next script is some sci-fi thing that was made in Korea, South Korea, called uh, Snowpiercer. I don't know what that is. Wait, sn- piercing snow is not hard to do. You would think. Yeah, maybe it's it could be really tightly S- packed snow, Kelly Wand. Air hardener. <laughs> and it has Ice something like... Maker. I think Chris Evans is in it or something. Sunshiner. Oh. So there's my number two pick is the the uh, tantrum in Before the ne- Devil Knows Slow Your tantrum. Head. Yeah. Dingus, what is your number? Yes, can I watch? Was that a was that a Ryan O'Neill movie directed by Norman Mailer? Before the Devil Knows You're Dead or Snowpiercer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Forget what I'm saying. All of it. Sorry. Uh, All right, over to you, Dingus. What is your number two favorite favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman movie? All right. um, uh, Here's a quote from it. Uh, I'm going to light a cigarette, old timer. Oh, well, I, I actually know that one. What is that? It's a movie called Magnolia? No. This is from the same director. This is from Hard <laughs> Eight. Oh, he also says I, it's Magnolia. It's a, he it's does? A, it's a riff on, it's a, yeah, it's a callback to Hard Eight. I don't know. Oh, is it? Doesn't he, doesn't Jason Robards want a cigarette in Magnolia? Can you buy it? Sure. Yeah, does he give him one? I don't know. All right, so give us the Hard Eight moment, Dingus. So Hard Eight, it's just one, he's just in the movie for one scene. He's just in this craps scene. He's this young craps player, and he's this total jerk. Um, and it's an it's a very I mean it's not his first movie. I mean he did a bunch of stuff before that. I mean the guy did like what do you have like fifty credits when he died, uh, and he's forty six. He was forty six when he died. Um, and he's just this uh, this jerk at the craps table, and so. Um, Philip Baker Hall's character shows up at this table, and he's just this 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 wizened, hardened guy who is used to playing these tables. And this jerk is there uh, throwing craps and calling him old timer and messing with him. And there's this, uh, I mean. If you want to watch, one of the things I love about this scene is that you see a character arc within a scene. And, and this is something that's very difficult to do. And Philip Seymour Huffman does it, does it in this scene. And this is available on Instant right now. And I think it's a really worthwhile movie to watch. Uh, it's just very interesting to see all of these people at certain points in their career, from Gwyneth Paltrow to, uh, to Philip Baker Hall, uh, to John C. Riley. Any of them, but in particular, seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman play this one scene that has this character arc where he's this jerk who gets a weird comeuppance, but it's not an obvious comeuppance. You just see him go through it. You see him go through calling this guy old-timer and then getting schooled in this weird sort of way and being emasculated. And the way that he shows at this point in his career, the way he plays that little character arc within a scene um i i'm just i love i i, I first of all i love hard i love the story of it getting made um i, I love how uh, uh uh paul thomas anderson went to philip baker hall to try to get him to do it um i i just love the whole thing and watching uh philip seymour hoffman play that thing it's just oh, he's so great and he just looks so weird and 
dopey, and uh, he's just great in that scene. Which is one scene. His his comeuppance is um, is basically he's goaded this old timer, quote unquote, into betting on a hard eight, and and oh, it's the, titular, Baker, it's the titular scene, and well, sort of, and Philip Baker Hall does it, but not for the reason you think. Kind of, he's he's broke. He breaks him. Uh, by losing the bet and watching Philip Seymour Hoffman at the end of that, when he's lost, when that old man has lost the bet because of him and watching what that does to him is, is a fascinating little moment. Um, it's just a, it's just one little scene where Philip Baker Hall goes up to the table and it looks like a, whose dick is better, is bigger than whose. And, it doesn't quite turn out that way. And just the way the nuance that that Philip Seymour Hoffman can give to that character turns it into something different than the normal like guy who would be the jerk at the dojo. Philip Baker Hall loses the bet? Yeah. I don't that, like that but, that, but that's that's in the middle of the movie. The movie's about other things, but right. but he's he's not necessarily he's kind of throwing away money to um, tear down somebody who's disrespected him. I mean, he, he in a sense, he knows he's. He, I don't know. It's it's one reading of the scene. He, he knows he's going to lose this bet, or that the chance that he's going to win the bet is very small. But the point is to teach this boy a lesson, and you see that happen, and it's just a really great little moment. Dingus, did you know there's a movie where Philip Baker Hall? Uh, adopts a duck. It's true. It's the whole premise of the entire movie. It might even be called Duck. It's about Philip Baker Hall and a duck. Why would you say that? I don't know. I just thought of that when you were just now talking. It's true. I didn't make it up. He He's like an old, sad man, and he doesn't have a lot in his life, so he gets a duck. Um, do you know he's also in Midnight Run? Philip Baker Hall's in Midnight Run. That's right. You would bring this about to mid around to Midnight Run. All right, who is he in Midnight Run? He's the sort of the counselor to Dennis Farina. He's telling him, Jimmy, I know you, you, that that's what you're going to do. You're thinking about taking this guy out. I'm here to tell you that you should not do that. And he's like, Sydney, I'm going to bury this phone in your fucking head. <laughs> Wait, Dennis Farina he, says that to Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. I wish it had been the other way around. So he Your plays. So I believe I believe the character's name is Sydney, but he plays Sydney in, in both. Ah, right. All right. Well, didn't Hard Eight have another working title? Or yeah, was it was it? it was called Sydney. Ah, very good. Okay, that's what it I was mean. originally called Sydney, and I forget what movie uh, Paul Thomas Anderson worked on him worked on with him. Right. But he basically sort of gave him the script and said, "Hey, I'm interested in doing this," and and Phil Biggerhall's like, "Yeah, yeah, kid, whatever." <laughs> Uh, but eventually he, he brought him around to the fact that, yeah, I'm really going to do this and you're going to be the lead. Uh, so, yeah, I think he plays Sydney in both movies, but, but Heart 8 was originally called Sydney. And then when it went to Sundance, it got all these weird editing things that happened to it, and it was called Heart 8 instead. Uh, does Philip Seymour Hoffman's character have a name? Do we know? Or just Dude at Craps Table? I think he's just Young Dude at Craps Table. All right. Kelly Wand, now we're to I get you. that movie mixed up with The Cooler a lot. Mm, if you'd seen them both, I think you wouldn't have that issue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, seen them both. Fuck. Good point. Thanks, Tom. Kelly Wand, what is your favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moment in a movie? 
My favorite favorite Stephen movie is uh, in the movie. It's a lovely tribute, Kelly Wand. See, it's hard to pretend you're dull when you're as interesting as a podcaster. Uh, is when he crank calls Laura Flynn Boyle on happiness. We used to, so me and a buddy of mine used to say lines, I'm not going to do it on the podcast, but used to say some of those lines to each other, which are grossly inappropriate things. Uh, and crack I know who you are, you're nothing. You think you're fucking something, but you're fucking nothing. You're empty. You're a zero. You're a black hole. I'm going to fuck you so bad you're coming out of your ears. You said that to a roommate? <laughs> we would say, uh, you know what? If, if, you're, if you're offended by bad language, I want you to fast forward the podcast a little bit. Make sure there are no children listening. What I'm going to say is not stuff that I say. It's things that me and my friend would quote to each other from happiness. Grossly inappropriate. As a matter of fact, I'd rather you just didn't listen to what I'm about to say to Kelly Wand. Okay? That's to the listeners. Here you go, Kelly Wand. Ready for this? Yeah. Are you wet? Is your wet? Wait, you said that to your roommate? I'm so ashamed. That's just one of that's just this gross little line that he has to her in happiness. And my friend used to say that to me and I thought it was funny and it was ridiculous, so we would say that to each other. Wait, he says that's horrible. <laughs> Uh, he actually says it to, uh, is her name Joy Adams? I'm going to, uh, what's, oh, dadgummit. It's when he's prank calling the nicer girl in, in happiness. Joy Adams, that's her name, right? Maybe not. Uh, Whenever I would mention that I hadn't seen that yet, which went on for years, you guys would go, what are you wearing? Yeah, <laughs> that's the more, right, you know what, I should have used that line. We would also say lines like that, but yeah, there's also the more. Did uh, you guys see Lena? Isn't that what the other sister says all the time? Oh, that's, that's the yeah, the chick from uh, oh, what's her name, Cynthia? Oh, that comment. She was on Roseanne, I know, but yeah, that's that's the little uh, the sister. Yeah. Um, the little sister. Well, she's the I don't know if she's the little sister. She's Joy Adams is what I want to say. Is that the actress's name? Someone help me out here. That's the one. Joey Lauren Adams. Is that her no, name? I don't yeah. remember. Uh, Jane Adams. Jane Adams. Oh, Jane. All right. Yeah, she plays the one who hooks up with uh with. I think the character's name is Joy. That would make sense, since she is named Joy. You're right. Get it? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so those... Uh, and I, the scene where he's at work, and he's doing the prank call, and the guy walks what over... John Lovitz. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. <laughs> and the scene where he's at work, in his cubicle, <laughs> and he's making a prank call, and someone walks up to his, his door and talks to him, and he turns around realizing that he's been busted. You know, the guy didn't hear him, but he's just got this horrible guilt-stricken look on his face, and he's trying to pass off that he wasn't doing anything wrong and answer this inane question that he was just asked. Like, that's a I, that's classic Philip Seymour Hoffman. I didn't choose that. But I love that moment in happiness, uh, where it's a sort of a coitus interruptus where he's in the middle of his, his dirty prank call. All right, that's my number one, though. Okay. I forgot about it. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I should bleep what I just said. I might have to bleep that. That was, what? You know, that was so it's, inappropriate for, for general. You said, you said worse things than that tonight. No, please. You called a retard earlier. You, know, you were talking not. about somebody washing their cat. What's the big deal? Yeah, exactly. The Sit duck down. thing was pretty gross, too. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's fictitious. <laughs> Uh, what about the scene in Happiness, Kelly Wand, where Laura Flynn Boyle finally invites him over to the apartment? Yeah, She's like, okay, fine, come on over. And there's that long scene with no dialogue where he's yeah. just sitting there, and it, does he start to reach towards her? Yeah, and she's all, get out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it just doesn't happen. And, yeah, oh, he's drinking enough. So painful. Excruciating. He's only good on the phone. And this, it's so sad, the scene where he's talking to Dylan Baker, and Dylan Baker tunes out and starts making a list in his head of his groceries. Oh, my, yeah. Oh, that's so sad. I love Dylan Baker. 
Uh, all right. So, Kelly Warren, we should have known you picked something from Happiness. Uh, what's that mean? Uh, just that that's, that just seems like when you think of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and uh, I, I'm actually a little disappointed. We needed someone to talk about Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, I'm so oh, disappointed you didn't do that, Kelly. Yeah. Because uh, this, this week, one of the things that happened is, is that Tom and I sort of talked and said, uh, we should just uh, assign movies and and cancel out what other people are going to talk about because there's things that we're all going to talk about. And uh, and we talked about one movie in particular, and then I brought up uh, Synecdoche, and I said, I, I feel like one of us should watch that, and I just didn't get it. And we both kind of said, yeah, no, famously, I mean, we've talked about this before. Uh, uh, the did not work for me at all. It just passed me by. And, and Tom and I talked about, well, who's going to watch that? And we both kind of agreed, well, I'm, sh- I'm sure Kelly will cover that one. Give it to Kelly. Yeah. yeah. I forgot. Well, you know what? It, because it's so, it's so unified and it's not just a Philip Seymour Hoffman moment or movie. It's Kaufman and, like, it's all, it's more of a, but he talks about it in such uh, strong terms as far as a performance. Uh, in, in fact, it's been brought up so many times now is as how difficult it was for him. And, and it's sort of an insight into his life as an actor or into what it was to be an actor for him as, as to how difficult it was to disappear into that role and how much it took out of him and how doing that movie made him feel like, I don't know if I ever want to do this again. And so I was hoping uh, you would actually bring it up. Cause it's, I wanted to watch it. It's so long and glum and I didn't have it. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you haven't seen it. No, Although those are, of course I have. Yeah. We've both you seen it. Like I think it's a masterpiece. I'm, I, I, I kind of would agree with you, Kelly Wan, but I don't. I didn't appreciate it. I don't think I gave it the attention it needed. It lost me partway through. I love listening to people talk about it, and I it's definitely feel like I need to see it again. Um, but I just didn't. It's a hard movie. It it's makes over you... two hours, and yeah, and it's it's is it? It's, yeah, Tom it's long and glum and slow. It's slow. Tom it's Man. over two hours, and it feels like eight to me. Uh, and I I agree with Tom. I love hearing people talk about it. I love reading what people have to say about it and how they parse it. But for me, watching it, it was such a slog. Uh, I felt like it, it. What I said at the time was, I felt like it's a letter written to somebody else, which is sort uh, of a cop out. Well, maybe it's to me then, because I got it. But I can see where I've. Well, it was. It's like I saw let the right one in right before it, and then that was the double feature. And then I came out of that. I came out of left right one and goes, that was the best movie I've seen this year. And then I watched Shenectady right after that and went, that's the best movie I've ever seen. And then you didn't bring yeah. it up when we're talking Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm very disappointed. Ah, it's, like, it's, it's, in its, it's in a little shrine unto itself where Fair I feel enough. like, I don't like, talking about it kind of diminishes it. It's one of those okay. things like okay. where you kind All of right. want to just let it run free. And if people don't get it, they're not, I mean, I can't, I can't make you like it. <laughs> but for me, I've never seen it since. I watched it the one time I go, this is the best movie I've ever seen, and then I never watched it again. Right. Can you give us a line from it? Die. Yep. I knew you were going to say that because you brought that up before. It's one of the things that made me want to see it. Is when but you it's not his line. The whole movie's good. I don't. All right. It's beyond. It's ahead of its time. Well, if talking about it diminishes it, I'm I'm about to diminish another movie right now. Ready for okay. this, Kelly Wand? 
Wait, am I next or is Dingus next? I've screwed up the order. No, you're next. Okay. Uh, my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman moment, what I did watch this week. Uh, by the way, stupid Netflix, uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is not on instant watch anymore. I know. I, it's so heck? annoying when things, when you're like, yeah, that's there. I can watch it anytime. You guys both agree. It's yeah. gone. Yeah. They, they okay, take Netflix, one movie's gone. No, I, I love that movie, and it was really disappointing that it wasn't there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys live together. I forgot. When something well, happens, what does that one, have to do with whether it's on? Yeah. The whole household hears about it. Oh, Netflix oh, is not, it's not just alert. It's not not streaming just here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they didn't just single us out, Kelly Wand. Nah, but, one, but come on. There's a lot of reasons to be upset at the world. All right. Well, my number one my favorite, favorite Philip. Right. right. Tom, if I may interrupt, please. Well, there are Thank precious you. few reasons to be upset at Netflix. <laughs> we just need to take advantage of them. Just want to make that clear. Yes. That's my McConaughey. Stand. <laughs> uh, okay, my favorite oh, yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman moment is uh, I did watch this week again, and uh, I'd only seen it in theaters when it came out. I guess four or five years ago. Uh, this movie is so freaking good, and I, I part of what this movie does is very coyly play with the, the true events that happen, and, and it's very much about something that you, as the audience, aren't privy to, and you have to. It, it won't tell you what happens. You have to make up your mind. as the point of the movie. The, the movie is Doubt, directed by uh, John Patrick Shanley uh, and written by him from a stage play. Uh, and the substance of the movie is, uh, has a priest basically uh, sexually abused a, a child? Um, it's a period piece. It's in the 60s. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman as the priest. Meryl Streep as sister, and I love saying this name, Sister Aliushis. Uh, who suspects him, and Amy Adams is a, a nun uh, who is kind of the, the – it's a struggle for what she believes. Like, it's about which one she believes. Um, but watching the movie, and I think John Patrick Shanley would approve of this, watching the movie a second time, and from a specific moment that I want to bring up, which is not your normal Philip Seymour Hoffman moment. It's not about his fierce intelligence. It's not about his, his vulnerability and pathos. There's a moment where he has a scene with Amy Adams, and he is talking to her uh, about this suspicion that has been placed on him of having done this terrible thing. Uh, and he has a moment where it's it's a great two-person scene. You know, the the movie, because it's from a, a screen of a stage play, breaks down a lot where you're going to have two actors or three actors sitting down talking. So in the scene with Amy Adams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, where he's explaining about how you can know about a person, he says to her. I can look at your face and know your philosophy. And it is at that moment that this movie, which is about you know doubt and can you really be certain of things, that I personally decided that he did not do what he's accused of doing. Because there is so much he has so much like conviction and compassion and there's so much honesty and, and forthrightness when he says this, when he talks about how we can know about each other and his own philosophy, um, that I it, it won me over. It completely won me over. And I think that's part of the point of the movie is what do you choose to believe? What things inform what you believe? And this is a metaphor, of course, about religious faith, but in the context of the drama, the story is about which character do you believe. So in that one tender, awesome moment he has with Amy Adams, where he explains 
what you see in me, what you believe about me, is because you can read that, and I have the same feeling towards you. Uh, and it's so atypical of the kind of stuff that he's normally hired to do. Uh, it's just an, an incredible, touching, oddly powerful moment. Uh, and so much of the rest of the movie, by the way, there's a there's a three-person scene in the middle of doubt, which is as exciting as any action scene. It, it's the power play where he gets invited into Sister Aliusha's office. She's the principal of the school. And he is confronted before Amy Adams with the charges. And it's this incredible three-way power play between the, the, the characters, which is amazing. Uh, and then he later has a scene with Meryl Streep, which is all about these just brilliant, over-the-top, just dramatic fireworks of these two actors unleashing with each other. Uh, and actually not over-the-top, because it's not over-the-top. They're both very restrained, yeah. right. but just so powerful with each other. And there's just enough yelling and intensity. Um, but what really sold me was that one moment where he has that line to Amy Adams, and I decided, you know what? I now believe that he did not do what he's accused of, 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 of having done. Uh, Plus the other actor was Carrot Top, huh? What? <laughs> are you calling Amy Adams Carrot Top? Why are you? Oh, she's that? the other person. <laughs> yes. Have you seen Doubt, Kelly Wand? No. What? I don't see movies that aren't certain about. <sighs> I should see it though, because it's fucking John Patrick Shanley, my favorite Joe versus the Volcanoist. It's John Patrick Shanley, and it is you know it. it and Amy Adams. They're just they they're uh, watching the movie. I can't help but think, just as actors, these are absolute titans. Uh, you know, Meryl Streep. Dingus is always going on and on about oh Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep. Yeah. And it's so, and I'm like, whatever, she's fine. But then I watch Doubt, and I'm like, oh, that's what Dingus is talking about. Yeah, Dingus is on to something. Just the <laughs> things she does with just little looks and gestures and. And that, oh my God, just her, her disapproval and uh, there's a, you know, her, her entrance into the movie when she calls a boy out, like there's a, <laughs> a, a courtroom of kids and they're doing kid stuff and one of them does something that's a little out of line. I think he like touches Amy Adams on the shoulder or something and Meryl Streep appears at this balcony overlooking them and summons this boy up and it's it's every bit as powerful as the entrance of a king in a Shakespearean drama yes, or something. Yes. It's an amazing moment. Uh so, uh, yeah, just that whole movie is so fantastic. Uh, and it was so awesome to see it again and have in your head, okay, this is a movie about ambiguity. We can't know, and John Patrick Shanley doesn't want us to know the quote-unquote truth of the matter, so we decide for ourselves. So seeing it with that in mind a second time and thinking, you know, where am I going to decide what I believe, uh, it's, it's just a fantastic experience. Uh, and I was completely won over by Philip Seymour Hoffman, so... A Shanley handshake ensues. <laughs> we should be so lucky. Was it? A, did it have a period after it or an exclamation point? Doubt had uh, it had an apostrophe. Yeah. Okay. Question mark. All right. <laughs> Question mark. Yeah. That's my comeuppance. Well, and also there's that that awesome scene, and Dingus, you and I have talked about this line during the scene where they're in there and they're bringing up the charges. It opens. You know, they're they're kind of nervous, Amy Adams and Meryl Streep, about how to. Uh, bring up the subject. So the scene begins as a conversation about the Christmas pageant. And they start segueing to talking about one of the boys in the Christmas pageant and whether or not something's happened to him. And the conversation starts going in a very definite direction. And there's a wonderful little moment where Philip Seymour Hoffman, in the act of drinking tea, says, what are we talking about? 
<laughs> which is just where he realizes that he's been called for something that he didn't quite expect. Uh, and that, that's actually my number one. Um, oh, no, Dingus! <laughs> uh, that's, that's totally fine, because what he actually does is he reaches for sugar. He reaches for that cube of sugar in that pack. And, and there's this great moment where he says exactly what you're saying. He says... Uh, what are we talking about? And and it's that moment where, for me, that this is the moment for me where I was supposed to sort of decide where I was, where the balances were kind of tipping for me of where is this going? What am I supposed to decide about this character? And the way Philip Seymour, this is in 2008, uh, I you know I used to run this Oscar contest of my own, and one of the things that I used to do is 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 list my favorite moments of the year, and this was. In 2008, this is one of my favorite film moments of the entire year, is when he reaches for that sugar cube, and he and he kind of leans back and says, what are we talking about? And he looks at the two of them, and you see a genuine confusion on his face, because as Tom says, he's been called in to talk about something that he thinks he's been called in to talk about, and he suddenly is creepingly realizing that's not what we're talking about. And then it's as, and as Tom said earlier, this three person scene is just this powerhouse scene, uh, mainly because of how amazingly powerful Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, Philip Seymour Hoffman is. And then how Amy Adams is quietly powerful. Uh, it's just got such a great dynamic, but that moment, Right there, where he says, "What are we talking about?" is my favorite moment of anything he has ever done. Just that look that he gives as he's getting that little cube of sugar. I love that so much. It's also there's a kind of, and maybe I'm just looking for this to reinforce my own opinion about the movie. But there's a, there's an absolute guiltlessness there. Yeah. Like it's not like he feels he's been caught. He's his his question is, "What are you guys on about?" Uh, and it's not. It's not like he's covering for anything. And it's clear as the movie goes on that he definitely has some secrets and he definitely has done some things wrong. And he is not, you know, there are maybe some skeletons in the closet. But in response to the question about, I think the kid's name is Donald Miller, in response to the question about this one kid who they suspect he's abused, there's it's guiltless. It's completely guiltless, his response to them. Um yeah. It's also without politics because he's used to having to play the politics of the school, but in this moment he wasn't expecting that. Yeah. He wasn't expecting politics to creep up at this moment. And he's in the and she has this specific very weird sort of relationship with sugar. Um and when he's doing it's just this weird sort of the way the whole room is working and him realizing this realization and that he does that as an actor that he understands or, or that he doesn't even do that I mean, he's just being truthful he's just he's just being honest in the moment he, he doesn't have to try it's just wait what are we talking i love that moment so much oh it's my favorite moment ever Dingus, do you remember who shot uh doubt who the cinematographer is oh no i have no idea it's roger deakins oh no way man oh, that, that, looks well, that makes good. perfect sense yeah Oh, it looks so good. Just the, the the office and the you know, there's a lot of the power play in that scene has to do with lighting. Like at one point, Meryl Streep she keeps turning lights on, or she keeps like raising the blinds, and he lowers them. Uh, uh, and it's this yeah. this great metaphor of you know hiding the light and shining the light on the problem. And it's the same with the sugar you're talking about. Her disapproval about the sugar and his bit with the ballpoint pen <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it, it looks so good, that movie. Because John Patrick Shanley, I don't, I think he's directed maybe one other thing, but he's mainly a writer. Joe vs. Volcano, he directed. He directed that. Well, I've never seen yeah. that. Oh. <sighs> Therefore. <laughs> Jeez. I guess maybe I should, but I, I, I mean, I think of him as a playwright. I don't think of him as the Joe versus the Volcano guy. I don't think of him as doing romantic comedies with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Moonstruck. That's, not, that's him, right? right? Yeah. That's a comedy, too. Yeah. We haven't yeah. seen Joe versus the Volcano, and you haven't seen Doubt. Hmm. Yeah, Kelly Wand. Who's dumber? <laughs> with an apostrophe. <laughs> well, they're all weather-based. Uh, Dingus, do you remember the line? Uh, the, the wind is so. <laughs> there, there is this great wind moment with uh, with Emerald Street. Yeah. yeah, the wind is so peripatetic this year. Is that the yeah. right word? <laughs> <laughs> and we had a we had a debate about peripatetic. I think that year. Uh, all right, so there's Dingus stealing my number. Well, not the moment, but stealing from my movie. Uh, another number one moment. Does peripatetic mean it's twistery? Twisters are peripatetic. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the wind being peripatetic, all right. I learned something when I looked it up when I got home after I didn't get the part. Uh, Kelly, one the wind, the wind in the happening is peripatetic. That one doesn't count as a happening. <laughs> Diggis, uh, do we have any reader submissions for fa- fa- favorite Sil- uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman moments? Yeah, we have a we have a slew. Uh, here's the first one from Fred and Lynn. Uh, my favorite. Philip Seymour Hoffman movie memory is the cut to his uneasy laugh after Bunny Lebowski says to the dude <laughs> that she'll suck his cock. His wha- whoa, dingus, whoa, whoa. Dingus went in. For $1,000. Priceless. I just love that scene. <laughs> he spelled S-E-E-N. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, Fred. Isn't Bunny Lebowski like Tara Reid or someone? Yeah. Wow. And yeah, and I forget he's in Big Lebowski as I think Brandt. I like how listeners control Dingus and saying <laughs> What's right. the line again, Dingus? Yeah, I forget. What is it? Uh, see that movie. What are you wearing? <laughs> uh, next, we have Paul Weimer, uh, Memento Mori, Philip Seymour Hoffman, favorite moments. Number three, I had not seen the first Hunger Games movie. So I was a bit adrift when I had to watch Catching Fire as part of a podcast I participated in. (laughs) How come he has to watch it? Or he gets to watch it, and I don't get to watch it. It was more than pleasant to see a familiar good actor like Philip in a role there. Seeing him interact with Donald Sutherland playing his evil advisor Plutarch in a (laughs) well-crafted scene telling him how to best crush dissent was a nice bit of dialogue and character play in the middle of the movie. I, I disagree with Paul, by the way. I think that scene is so just ham-handed. I hate that scene. They, they do. They completely waste all the talent they have in those stupid movies. Wait, you saw it. Shut up. You saw Catching Fire? <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. You didn't I, mention I can't that believe they have. They they hire him and he just is. He basically twirls a mustache. Um, I, oh, I hated that scene. Did you read for that part too? Hands bow to Jennifer Lawrence. Wait, that's stage direction, isn't it? Nope, Seymour Hoppin. Best supporting actor for his line. Hands bow to Jennifer Lawrence. Okay. Uh, Paul Weimer's number two. 
Uh, in Magnolia, Philip Seymour Hoffman has an excellent role as the lonely, forlorn male nurse, Phil. Yep. I could pick three moments from this role alone if I wanted to, but I particularly like the grocery phone order oh. where he lists off the things he wants <laughs> and then timidly adds some pornography to the mix. But he's doing it for a reason. He's not doing it. He's doing it to look up Tom Cruise's phone number. We could just ask Pink Dot for Tom Cruise's phone number, you'd think, huh? That's right. I forgot about that. Is that, is that true, Kelly Wand? Which part? That's why yeah. he wants the pornography to look Yeah, because he looks it up, because he, he pages through it, and he goes, oh, look, the tame the cock guys. Respect the cock. Respect the cock, tame the cunt. Whoa, 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 Kelly Wand. Man, oh, a lot hey, of Excuse me. Uh, you corrected me on the other scene. <laughs> Um, and doesn't he specifically ask for? Is it a penthouse or isn't? Doesn't he have to? Specifically- and she goes, yeah. And then it's kind of a good scene, so it's distracting. He's all, what about hustler? And then she just doesn't get phased. She's like, yeah, sure. And he's all, really? Huh. So he's right, right. And the girl actress is good too. Voice girl. On the other end of the phone, though, it's a phone performance, right? Yeah, they always give me shit when I do that. <laughs> That's because you're always asking for barely legal. Jesus. I tell them to fuck. I ask them if they're wet, and then. Oh my god! Oh, stop. Oh, 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 oh. I believe I brought this up. Yeah. <laughs> See what happens. When Paul Weimer's number one in Boogie Nights. So get away from <laughs> pornography for a minute. Paul Weimer's brought up Boogie Nights. <laughs> yes. Uh, the awkward pass, and then the self-recrimination oh, as right. Hoffman's Scotty makes a pass at Mark Wahlberg, and then. After that blows up in his face, he sits in the car, sobbing and disconsolate at his own stupidity. No one who isn't human could not fail to feel the shame, frustration, and self-hatred that Hoffman pours into that moment. Well, nice one. <laughs> yes, so, Kelly Wand. That's pretty foreign to me. <laughs> Wahlberg was on a lot of blow the day I... Uh, uh, he's also got this... Yeah, he's very physical with a pencil, I seem to recall. As, as Scotty. Like Keith Ledger. Wait, no, in a different way. As Scotty? Oh, you remember his name. I see. Because the well, Paul just said it. Because the pencil's sticking out of a, if I recall correctly, it's sticking out of a, uh, what do you call those things that you clip the paper on a board? Um, Barrettes? No, it's like a, oh, clipboard. Clipboard, uh, he's got a, yes. <laughs> he's got what a do you clip- call those boards put things to, Tom? <laughs> he's got a clipboard with a pencil sticking out of it, and he's constantly, like, he's working his mouth on the pencil. Like, he's very oral with the pencil, I seem to recall. Huh. Uh, I have that under special skills. <laughs> Oral with a pencil. Uh, thank you for doing this. Hoffman is a tragic loss. Regards, Paul Weimer. Uh, next stage direction. Not <laughs> what part of the line was after the pencil? Chew. Right. Next, next we have. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> So someone did, I should warn you, Dingus, I don't know. Someone did uh, email me and say, hey, can I have Kelly Wan's address? Uh, I want to send her some fan mail. And so I told what? her, just, just send that to 3x3 three three at quarter to 3. So you might be reading some Kelly Wan fan mail that is not part of the 3x3. Three three, just so you Yep, I'm just reading that. that now. I will move on from okay. that. Um, I don't know. Should, Kelly Wan, should we read your fan mail on the air? Is it from a dude or a girl? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a script, so you're going to have to read it yourself, and it has the character Homer Simpson in it. So I'm going to let you read that. Moving Homer on. Simpson from uh, Night of the Locusts by Nathaniel West. Oh, that has an apostrophe. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the fan mail. <laughs> uh, next, next, we have Sandu Bogi Nase. 
Um, it's hard to pick from so many fine performances. He'll be dearly missed. So I'm going with the only film he directed, the 2010 film Jack Goes Boating. Sundancing maybe, but the scenes between Hoffman and John Ortiz in and outside the awesome-looking Hansborough swimming pool in Harlem are so great it removes any misgivings I might have. They have such great character interactions with Hoffman's child, like Jack is so sweetly cherub-like in his goggles and cap. You just want to hug him and tell him everything will work out fine. As a director, he brings out really nice moments in the relationships between friends, partners, and human beings. Bogey. Uh, oddly enough, like I, that has Amy Ryan in it, and boy, I, she can do no wrong. But I found far more interesting the relationship between Philip Seymour Hoffman and John Ortiz in that movie. That's a good pick. Amy Ryan's kind of Carrot Top-esque, too, a little bit. <laughs> Uh, Nobody is Carrot Top-esque except yeah, Carrot Top. Except him and that snowboarder. All right, so next is Alexander Burns. Uh, first time writing in, thank you so much for making my transit to work not only bearable, but something to look forward to on Mondays. Uh, I could have listed dozens of outstanding Philip Seymour Hoffman moments, and while my favorite movie by him is Synecdoche, New York, I will never forget his comedic performance in Big Lebowski, specifically when Brandt repeats himself while explaining the dude about the little Lebowski urban achievers. Inner city children of promise, but without the necessary means for necessary means for higher education. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> Inner city children of promise, but without the necessary means for a ne- for necessary means for a higher education. I don't remember. I, I would think I, that I would remember every single line from yeah. Big Lebowski, but I love that he brought that one out. That's awesome. Hoffman does a wonderful job as a character who feels so uncomfortable around the dude who never went to college. Certainly, my favorite scene in the movie. That's just like uh, my opinion, man. Alex. <laughs> is that with Philip Seymour Hoffman? It is, isn't it? Yeah. In a limo. Yeah. Is it the Hey, There's a Beverage Here, man? Is it that scene? I, I, I know that movie far far less well than you do. Oh. All right, very good. All right, next we have uh, Jaja Ladi, who is Jonathan J. Lando de Pratna, who is now calling himself Jaja Ladi. Hmm. I hope this is getting to y'all in time. Jonathan J. Lando de Pratna with some thoughts and moments with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sorry. First, it may sound as if I'm taking the piss. Uh, I guess I should say that in an accent. First, it may sound like I'm taking the piss. But my first thought was of him in Along Came Polly. He was so game and charming in it, and yet so odious. Really interesting, and the moment in particular that is indelible is when he sharts and explains that he sharted and what that means. It was so funny to me, and I still mention and reference that moment, which is more than even Ben Stiller would expect from Long Came Polly. Wow, well, I guess none of us saw that. No, but we've now we've got... Uh, Mr. Hoffman, you will be missed. At least two movies in the last couple of weeks that mentioned sharding. Um, I, w- I, I was thinking of all of his P.T. Anderson stuff and how great he is in those, and everything but the specific moment in a forgettable film was made unforgettable and still brings a smile to my face. I know it sounds kind of dumb. 
All right, so he's just talking about long compelling. I also think of the monologue from Mission Impossible 3. You have such a great villain and really oozed character and and life onto into cookie cutter. Sorry. The only impression I can do of Mr. Hoffman is his, I'm going to find her, I'm going to hurt her, I'm going to kill her speech. But I do it often. Often. Anyway, just wanted to point out some moments where he elevated what could have been dismissed. I miss him and the performances we all miss out on and the films he would have directed. The last film he set to direct sounded really interesting. Oh well. Uh, I'm glad that moment in Mission Impossible 3 makes me realize that a lot of times um, the bad guy, the villain, doesn't really match the hero. Like, they'll sort of work at different levels. And I'm thinking of, uh, you know, whether it's the Joker in Batman or um, the in Skyfall, James Bond and Javier Bardem's character. But there, there's something really mirror-like in how Philip Seymour Hoffman does this kind of Tom Cruise yeah, intensity thing to Tom Cruise. Right. Like they're both at that same level at each other. Um, and him, you know, when Jonathan J. Lando Duprato mentioned those, I'm going to find her, I'm going to hurt her, I'm going to kill her. Like it's that same. It's like the kind of read that Tom Cruise would do if he was playing a villain. Uh, I love that. Because yeah. <laughs> that's how you know the best way to beat Tom Cruise is with your own Tom Cruiseness. <laughs> I never. Silent is a big Tom Cruise. So. Hey, I, I, lo- I love that you said that because for me, like un- unlike who's the guy in the second one, uh, Dugray Scott is that who it is? Oh my God! Um, oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> uh, do his name and how to pronounce it. When I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. When he right. does that, he he does that intensity, but he's got this sort of sense of being relaxed. I mean, he's just relaxed as an actor. He's just real. Uh, and I just remembered Dugray Scott being just so like, I gotta match you. Ah! <laughs> Is that your Dugray Scott impression? Yeah, that's uh, it, without the accent. Yes. It sounded a little like your McConaughey impression. <laughs> it's not. Uh, well, the third one at the beginning, he, Philip Seymour Hoffman's relaxed, and Tom Cruise has a bomb in his nose, and that's how the thing starts. <laughs> Tom Cruise does not have a bomb in his nose yeah, he does. at the beginning of Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> You're thinking of Total Recall. You can hear it in his nose. He's all, wait, what? Paris? Now, am I mistaken in that really the only thing to recommend that Mission Impossible is is Philip Seymour Hoffman, isn't it? No, it's good. You know what? Actually, I'm agreeing with... Wait, I forget if it was you or Dingus, but they are a good match in that movie. Because Philip Seymour Hoffman's, like, super smart, but he's, like... Right, but otherwise, is it because it's J.J. Abrams, and I remember it having at times a very sort of TV intimacy. Not, like it doesn't have any of the scale of what Brad Bird did. Right, right, right. It's possible. like Brad Bird's got better action, right. but Hoffman's so good in that movie. Right, right. It's a it's a really good matchup, and it's an it's actually a, it feels like an impossible mission. It's like the only one where it feels. So you're saying it's aptly named. <laughs> I it's maybe really J.J. Like Abrams' it. best. Yeah, I do too. I'm a defender of Mission Possible 3. I think it's good shit. Well, the way you say it's, it's Kelly wanted to say it's J.J. Abrams' best movie. That's really not saying much. I know. But I think it's maybe even the best Mission Impossible movie. Maybe. <sighs> because of like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, though, is what I'm saying. Isn't, this, isn't it all good because of Philip Seymour Hoffman? Who's the villain in the fourth one? I can't even remember. Oh, come on. It's uh, some random... Uh, it's uh, Klaus Maria Brandur. It's a guy like that. Some random Russian actor. Although he's tricking with Paul Patton's knobs instead of... <laughs> but no, the guy... You're right. The guy in the fourth one, and we talked about this, is there's just nothing to him. He's just a generic right. Russian general. Right. Uh, 
There's there's no real villain, and, and you really miss Philip Seymour Hoffman when you see the fourth one. But J.J. Uh, Abrams didn't ruin Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. Or Tom Cruise. Right. He could have. But I guess what I'm saying is, isn't Philip Seymour Hoffman really the only thing that makes the third one good? Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, but isn't it a lot? Like, he does a lot of funny shit to Tom Cruise. Right. They have a good rapport. And their blast duel's good. Blast Tom duel? Cruise, their blast <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was thinking I had a bomb in my nose. <laughs> I think Carrie Russell's awesome in it. Well, for the, the, what is it, three minutes that she's in it, yeah. Spoiler alert. But at the end, he's like, yeah, this will work. He's like, is, who's better in a Mission Impossible movie for three minutes? Carrie Russell or, uh, I want to say Josh Sawyer, uh, Josh Holloway? Kelly Wan, thoughts? Carrie Russell in Ghost Protocol at the end when she's all, oh, look, it's, it's Tom Cruise. Speaking of Michelle Monaghan. Yeah, it's Michelle Monaghan. Tell me why you suck at actors. Uh, Josh Holloway's on. Does he say anything in it, or is he just kind of like... No, he's got a little flashback dialogue, doesn't he? Doesn't he say stuff like, oh, you got me, or something like that? He's Abrams' Abrams' boy from Lost, but he's in the Brad Bird one. Very confused. Oh, that is confusing. What's going on there? And Philip Seymour Hoffman's in the Abrams, and Brad Bird gets... I don't understand anymore. What's happening? Well, at any rate, so yeah, I, I do like yeah, Possible 3 as well, but I, I, in in my memory, it's it's almost entirely because of Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's also a part where Tom Cruise, uh, like, he's in a traffic jam, so he dresses as the as the Pope and, like, pretends he has a car, like a, a broken head gasket. And then he, like, blesses the engine block, and then that gets him over, like, the wall. Berlin Wall. I think you're thinking <laughs> night and day. <laughs> I love Kelly Wan's mini synopses. <laughs> There's like a car in it. <laughs> and, it and a bridge. A bridge yeah, there's maybe. a bridge. He's an old man. They're all good. Aren't they? They should reboot those. Can um, you stop Josh? messing around with that balloon? <laughs> Alright, next we have Chris Hornbostel. I'm sure you guys are getting a ton of great moments. As was stated, there's certainly no shortage of them. My own favorite portrait of Hoffman's was as Lester Bangs in Almost Famous. And it's likely I'm one of many to mention it. No, Chris, you're the first. I would have mentioned it. I had that. Oh, yeah, he's, in that movie. he's got the pay he's got the sort of the payoff for that movie, is uh, the Lester Bangs scene. Is he in Vanilla Sky? Chris Hornbus? Do not think Lester Bangs is a character in, in uh, Vanilla Sky. Wrong crow. What's the secret identity's name? Are you asking me about Vanilla Sky? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Cameron Diaz. I don't know. The rapper. That's great. <laughs> this has been our Vanilla Sky cast. Uh, while I saw a lot of people quote Phil's delivery of the line, the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what we share with someone else when we're uncool. From the film last week, I have my own favorite moment. It happens as Lester and William are walking up the street, and the two characters say goodbye to one another, and then realize they're both walking the same way to the bus stop. <laughs> awkward. It's a beautifully awkward moment, which Bangs tries to play off with, I can't stand her all day talking to my thousands of fans. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> Gonzo's stories of Lester Bangs' excesses aside, 
The real Lester truly was a nerd and struggled to relate to people and could be painfully socially inept. Hoffman is masterful in capturing that beautiful vulnerability in the scene. We realize that Bangs, the successful iconic critic, probably really doesn't have anything better to do in the middle of an afternoon in 1973 <laughs> than talk to an adoring 14-year-old fanboy. No one but Philip Seymour Hoffman could have played that scene in character so perfectly. Nice. Thanks, Chris. That's great. And then finally, we have uh, Nick D. Uh, for my three, I picked moments which I hope demonstrate Philip Seymour Hoffman's wonderful versatility. Number three, The Big Lebowski. I love the moment when Hoffman is escorting the dude out of Big Lebowski's house, and they meet Bunny, who offers her services to the dude for $1,000. Hoffman's reaction is priceless, a mix of a grimace, laughter, and perfect comic timing. What are the services offered, Dingus? I forget. Uh, I think she offers to to uh, smooch his bone. <laughs> You're quoting uh-huh. sideways <laughs> on our <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman pop moments. Yeah. You quote sideways. Nice work, Dingus. I apologize. <laughs> uh, you said sideways or, or side effects. Uh, never mind. Uh, number two, Synecdoche, New York. The scene where Hoffman visits the eye doctor is wonderful. The doctor is speaking utter nonsense to him, and he wants to protest but ultimately backs down in the face of authority. I love his timing and nervousness. See, Kelly Wand, why couldn't you have brought something like that up for Synecdoche? Because I'm not good at things. (laughs) And finally, Nick D is number one, is almost famous. I think one of the hardest things for actors to do is portray warmth without being too saccharine. The moment where Hoffman gives advice to the movie's young protagonist in a little coffee shop is superb. He is wonderfully avuncular and rough around the edges. I think on some level, he will always be Lester Bangs to me, Nick. All right, that's it. Very good. Uh, Any, uh, runner, yeah, runner. yeah. Well, I, I I didn't re-see Capote. I'd like to again, but just the the depth of his commitment to the Capote affectation uh, is something that you've got to admire. Uh, it was Capote. just such a phenomenal casting choice, yeah. and to see him just take—I mean—to take that. I mean, you could see. Um, oh crap! Now I've lost his name. Who's the other guy who played Capote? Toby Jones. Toby, Toby Jones. Jones. <laughs> Poor Toby Jones. He has a book coming out this week, but I guess we can't. <laughs> well, you can see Toby Jones physically doing that, uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman just seems too huge. Uh, but he just jumped into it, and he was so good. It was just interesting. It was such a great commitment to that part. And it came out first. What's the uh, <laughs> and it came out first? <laughs> what's the uh, scent of a woman? The Al Pacino blind guy thing. He's the bratty, uh, uh, like schoolboy in that. I said it more as a Chris yeah. O'Donnell movie. I don't know. Who you oh are. God, that's right. Yeah. Jesus, that's the movie that gave us him. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, there is right. a, the other uh, movie I would have uh-huh. chosen if, uh, if I <laughs> chose the one that is is he is really good in this. Uh, little movie, a late quartet. Um, and he does this thing and it's just, if I were just going to choose a little moment, he's, he's out jogging, uh, with this woman that he's interested in. And, and he just does the same. They're, they're out jogging together and they're sort of swapping iPods. Basically. He's like, I want you to listen to this thing on my iPod. She's like, I want, you know, they're, they're in the middle of jogging. And the way he does the scene, he's, he's clearly out of breath. And, 
when you're when you're doing a thing like that, you haven't just been jogging. I just like the the way he pays attention to little details like mm-hmm. that. He's clearly out of breath in this scene in a late quartet. Um, it's it's a it's a really good little movie, and uh, and um, he's he's really good in it. All right. Now, Kelly, I wasn't sighing at you. I was just sighing at you know it sucks. All the Philip Seymour Hoffman movies that we're ever going to get have been made. Yeah. Fuck I- you. <laughs> I mean, there's some amazing stuff he's left us, and that's that's awesome. Um, Wait, what did I say that you were you weren't saying? Uh, I wasn't even listening to what you were saying. Oh, <laughs> so okay. if, it's, if it's any consolation, I didn't. Well, I accept your apology. Though. Okay, sure. he's left us a great deal of bounty. <laughs> Wait, what were you talking useful. about? Useful. He's left us lumber and performances, <laughs> and I'm pretty excited that I get to watch them again. So Kelly Wan Kelly Wan hasn't seen in a way, I'm jealous of you, Kelly Wan. You haven't seen Doubt, you haven't seen Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. You haven't understood Shenectady yet. I yep. haven't seen I need to see I that. I didn't understand Amazing Mr. Ripley. <laughs> didn't find it amazing. Or even know the title of it. Right, right. Mary Martha Magdalene. Uh, you guys are gonna have a grand time seeing Hunger Games too. <sighs> when did you see it, you fucker? What the fuck? Uh, I see mention. a lot of uh, I see a lot of crappy movies. I, you know, you made us see The Hobbit instead of that, and then you, you go it. and sneak off. You made us I did not make anyone see The Hobbit. You made us see The Hobbit, you jerk. Yeah. <laughs> but I was whining for Hunger Games with Tom Zoll. Well, before we uh, talk about what we're seeing next week, and this is going to be your fault as well, Kelly Wand, okay. uh, let's hopefully do a 3x3 three three that's a little bit more, uh, not quite a downer. Uh, Kelly Wan, what do you have for us next week? Hopefully something a little more joyous. What, what's our next 3x3? Three three? I'm really excited about this, and I've been waiting to do it for years. I'm really excited about it. Dimension. Ready? Yep. <clears throat> three best oceans. Just the whole ocean? Like, there's, yeah. there's not that many of them. There's only, like, s- like seven. seven or eight. Yeah. Seas. The seven seas, right. There might be more oceans. There's actually eight- really one ocean, because it all is connected. Well, there are at least 13 in cinema. Billy. <laughs> so is that is that our three by three? Is three best oceans? Yeah. What does that mean? I, I should have asked. Never mind. I'm not taking anything off the table. Except the Are water. You're gonna put table. anything on the table. <laughs> JK. I'm putting every ocean shower scenes count. It can be any amount of water. It can be a droplet. It can be a universe. Huh? But there has to be it has but to be inside a bathroom. So Dingus, let's just make our own three by three for next week and we'll just let Kelly Warren do whatever he's gonna do. Alright, I like that. What should we do for our water based themed <laughs> thematically topical oceans. Three best movies, movies Kelly refuses to see. Yeah, three three movies we want Kelly to uh, see. Oh Hunger Games too. <laughs> uh, I don't know so so do you Maybe if you tell us a little bit about what inspired this, Kelly Wan, we might be able to understand more about what you're... The Master Commander novels take place on one of them. Okay. And you want us to just name an ocean? You want us to name an ocean that's in a movie? Does it have to... It has to be an ocean in a movie? It has to be a scene in the movie that features an ocean in it. All right. So basically, we ocean scenes. Yeah. Okay. Like, it also be like an ocean of sand, like a desert. Like Tatooine. Yeah. How about an ocean of space? Nope. 
<laughs> See, takes you hit his limit. That doesn't happen very often with Kelly Wan, but you did hit a hard limit there. So good work sussing that out, Dingus. Well played. Oceans are not connected, but space is all one thing. Any mm-hmm. other questions? That's not true. It's like I said earlier. Yeah. Did well, you know about Ice Nine? What's that? What that is. Ice is not does not count for the purposes of the topic. Continue. Uh, by the way, Puddle. the movie uh, uh, that uh, so the director of the host. He's a Korean whose name I want to say <laughs> Boon Jo Hong. I, I apologize. I must, that was terrible. Uh, like, like Kelly say it. <laughs> no, uh, but at any rate, that no. Snow- he directed the Snowpiercer movie, which I just found out is from oh. a graphic novel, a French graphic novel called it's something like. Le Transpiece Neige. Ew. Which is French for Snowpiercer. That's racist. That's worse. I, I said it. That's how the French... Do it again. It sounded like Le, the name of a pair of glasses. And many hung chick in sieves. Le Transpiece Neige. What's that mean again? Snowpiercer. Ew. Um, it's At any rate, so that's not an ocean, though. Cause it's, oh, yeah, right. Uh, so well, it could be frozen. Ocean. Well, it off. No French. It might, right. be, a, it might be a notion. France, France does not border an ocean. That's what? the first thing you might want to be keeping in mind from you making lists. So you can get rid of a couple movies right off the go. Let everybody know the about the, the list. That the code does you. Top Gun takes place above it, correct? <laughs> okay, Kelly. Indian well. Ocean. Well, if you have ideas for best ocean, send them into 3 by 3 Don't mangle my topic. <laughs> right. Best Too oceans in Why do that to what actors say? I will mangle my own topic. Thank you. Uh, that's the number three, the letter X, the number three, <laughs> at quarter to three dot com. Uh, next week. Something. Yes, Kelly Wand? I was going to say, I, I can't really think of any good ideas for this, for my own entry, so I may be cribbing from what the listeners send. Something the they movie, can look forward to. The movie Alien, because they don't know they're in an ocean. Right. <laughs> Kelly Wand, uh, you can also check your fan mail on the email account. Non faked physical. If it's not, is it really fan mail? Like in a fucking. Yeah, you'll have to find out. It is fan mail. I'm going to mark it as unread so you'll be easily able to find it. Uh, And then see next week because we will be seeing Robocop. Why are you going to. Have you seen uh, Elite Strike Force? No, Elite Force. Elite Force 9. What's the. So I think the director's name is Jose Padilla, and he did in Brazil uh, a movie called something like Elite Strike Force 2, um, <laughs> or Elite Force 2. It's something like that, which I actually quite enjoyed, and had some really good action sequences in it. Um, so that I was compared hopeful. to the first one in the series. I didn't see Elite Force 1 or Elite Strike 1. Um, oh, yeah. because you don't. Uh, I think it was a smaller, like almost not a student film, but it was like a smaller right. Little project that he did, and this was You're more like, like that. the Brazilian equivalent of a of a Hollywood movie, I believe. Oh well, those are worse. So he did that; it did well. I think you can watch it on Netflix if you could figure out what it's called. Strike Force Elites, something like that. American um, made film, no go. Brazilian sequel, <laughs> hello. But now he has come over here to America, and he's remade Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop with hopefully some sort of 21st century slant to it. We'll find out what he's doing. Um, so see that and join us next week to talk about it and send us your 3 by 3 choices for best oceans in movies, ocean scenes in movies. I love when Tom actually tries to find out where that goes. That's interesting. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been joined by Christian Merlansky. It's Christian Murawski. Kelly Wand. Tom, are your oceans wet? 
Piano from Mission Possible. Dingus. A hilarious joke follows. <laughs>